Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Tuesday morning, August 22nd, 843-661-0937 is the number. Uh, good morning, Josh. Good morning. The Rev is not here this morning. He'll be here later in the day. I doubt he's here for the show. Had some um, family matters to take care of. Nothing emergency, nothing unforeseen, scheduled, and uh, and we knew eventually there would be a time he was not going to be here one day um, this week. Got the call. He's not here. All's good. Uh, no, nothing wrong. It'll be Josh and I um, here this morning. 843-661-0937 is the number. I want to go back and begin because uh, we got a lot to get to today. I, got, um, I spoke to Robert Cahaley yesterday from Trafalgar and try to get Robert to come on today to talk about some of the comments I made. I want to make sure I'm not out there too far um, on a limb that doesn't make any analytical sense. I've said it before. I'll say it again. I'm not an analytic. I'm not a, statist- a statistician. I'm not a, uh, you know, a strategist. I am a former candidate who lived and died by gut and instinct. I mean, it was always that with me, and I guess that's why Robert and I always did well together. Robert was the strategist and the, the, the analytic mind behind my gut instinctive nature of doing things, and, and together we made a, a pretty formidable team. But Robert's always paying attention to the data. What does the data say? The interpretation of, of the data, Josh. And, and yesterday I said, and, and my gut. So, so let's talk about where data analytics meet gut instinct. You ready? So I said yesterday that I believed this song by Oliver Anthony was a kind of a, a ringing of the bell again about how intense this populism is in the American political discourse. Mm-hmm. That's instinctive. That's my gut. I mean, it's 32 million views today. I mean, I looked this morning. It's about 32 million views. It's about 16 million reactions. You know, they'll have these videos where someone reacts to a song. Uh, black, white, red, green, yellow, man, woman, conservative, liberal, independent. I mean, you've got a, uh, just a, uh, in other words, Josh has a reaction station. Josh has never heard Born to Run. I send Josh Born to Run, and Josh reacts on camera. And it's kind of interesting. It's normally spontaneous. I mean, sometimes you can tell it's rehearsed and, and choreographed, but it's normally, I mean, it's interesting to get a reaction. I mean, my reaction is greatest song ever. But but obviously, most reactors don't agree with that. I mean, they say, that's a good song. I mean, it's old. You know, who's this guy that, you know, looks like this now, looked like this or that then? But, um, but anyway, um, not only has Oliver Anthony's anthem – taking the internet by storm. Um, here's all I'll say. When you pass Taylor Swift and you don't have a record deal, something's kicking. No kidding. Now, now John Rich said that had Oliver Anthony had a record deal, that probably um, the the rich men north of Richmond would probably have never gotten released. I don't, I don't deny that. But anyway, I reached out to Robert yesterday and I said, Robert, I'm making – I mean, I, I'm trying to make something of this this anthem and this viral response, the fact that we now have 31 million Americans that have downloaded that song, that have been stirred by that song. Some have been moved by that song. Um, some call it a racist anthem. Some say it's a rallying cry for the American working class. Some wish he left that line in or didn't put that line in or, you know, had a little more um, ensemble behind him. Okay, fair enough. But there's no doubt that it has had an effect in some way, shape, or form. My instinct says that it has reminded us 
of, of kind of the rallying cry of the America First political movement. It's not ideologically driven. It's, it's more about the preservation or reestablishment of a way of life, the American way. Josh, I don't have a right to decide what the American way is. Right. You don't have a right to decide what the American way is. One of the interesting comments that Vivek Ramaswamy's making today on the campaign trail, and I would imagine he'll do this uh, tomorrow in the debate in Milwaukee, Ramaswamy is being challenged about the ideal of America. And he's going in hostile territory. I mean, he's on Bill Maher's podcast. He's on um, some of the urban radio shows. I mean, I don't know what you get out of that in a Republican primary except to try and grow the party. I mean, he's going places that historically have not been fertile ground for Republicans, but he's made the comment in the last week or so about the ideals of America. And he says for a nation to have ideals means it is an aspirational nation by nature. In other words, what are the ideals of Iraq, the ideals of Iran, the ideals of, of Yugoslavia? Former, we don't know. I mean, there is no ambitious desire to meet those potential ideals. So what Ramaswamy is saying is, of course, I mean, if, if we're a nation of ideals and principles and virtues, but men get to make the rules, we're always going to fall short. I mean, we're always going to conflict ourselves or contradict ourselves. All men are created equal. And then, you know, the guy that penned that phrase goes back to, you know, a plantation where he has slave labor. But, but it's the ideal that we're striving to be better, that we're trying to do our best to reach right. some of these, these ultimate goals and ambitions. But as long, I mean, if we were, I mean, if, if, if you were God and I was God and everybody in America were gods, we'd reach those ideals. But we're not. We're, we're, we're fallible human beings. I am, you are, everybody is. But we do have these aspirational ideals that we believe are important to strive for, to try and reach and, and attain. And Ramaswamy saying that, over and over and over again, and it resonates. I mean, it really resonates. Uh, Bill Maher said, I hadn't thought of that. You know, Maher thinks of a lot. But when Maher says, I hadn't thought of that, I can't play Maher because Maher drops the F-bomb too much. And, <laughs> um, and that's not suitable for terrestrial radio. But he sat down with Bill Maher, and Bill Maher said, Vivek, I hadn't thought of that. I mean, we're not a nation of gods. We're a nation of men and ideals and principles and ambitions. And as long as men are in charge, we're going to fall short. Right. We're not going to reach all of those lofty ambitions and ideals and principles. But once again, what is the ideal of Iraq? Who knows? What is the ideal of the Communist Party of China? That the ideals of the former Soviet Union, I mean, they don't strive or, or have ambition to, you know, to, um, to reach these, these lofty goals. We do. But I want to go back to something, and this goes back to Oliver Anthony. Oliver Anthony's singing about the American way, what his perception is of the American way. Um, the new world with an old soul. I mean, I can relate to that. I can very much relate to, I mean, if you ask me the line of the song, that's it. Uh, living in this new world with an old soul. I don't like the way that, that the nation is conducting itself today. And then I'm, 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 you know, I'm not blameless. I mean, of course I'm not. I'm, I'm very divisive in some of my comments and commentaries, but I'm divisive in trying to steer the country in a direction that I think preserves the right way for America to, to, um, to try and reach some of these, some of these lofty goals. And Ramaswamy will talk a lot about that, um, tomorrow. But anyway, I want to go back to Robert because I, I reached out to Robert yesterday and I said, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm interpreting 
this anthem as kind of a um a end of summer reminder that the the intensity of America first is still there. Mm-hmm. And he responded, yes, I mean, there's no doubt about it. I said, okay, let's break down some numbers. Now, Robert has agreed, and you'll have to work on this, Josh. Um, he's traveling today to Milwaukee to be, you know, in, in uh, on site for the debate. He has some television appearances this morning, but he's agreed to make some time for us tomorrow morning in Milwaukee, boots on the ground, uh, where the Republican primary debate will be. I mean, Trump won't be there. And the biggest news is, and I think Trump is probably wise not to be there. I mean, if you have a overwhelming lead, why risk that by, you know, showing up there? But anyway, we're going to try to run Robert Anamar, get a um, boots on the ground report from Milwaukee from one of the guys who is important in, in the world of um, who's going to win and why. But, but I said, Robert, there, there's, a, there's a pervasive argument in America today that Trump can't win a general election. My instinct tells me Trump's the only Republican candidate that can win in a general election. Tell me why I'm wrong. And then we begin going through some, some reality, some mathematical reality, not punditry, not, not, you know, he said, she said, not what Josh believes or what Ken believes or what Josh wished were true, what Ken wished were true. We went through some math. It's been about 20 minutes going over some, some math. And for those out there, now, now, once again, I understand, to some degree, I guess I appreciate the Republican operatives who say Trump can't win that are being paid. I mean, I get that. I mean, the, 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 the Internet's full of those people. Uh, National Review's full of those people. Uh, Real Clear Politics is full of those people. They don't have a sincere bone in their body. I mean, if somebody paid them more money to say Trump's the only candidate that can win, they'd say that. But right now, the um, what I call conservative ink is hanging on by a thread, and they've still got a lot of donors and, and, and a lot of fundraising abilities, and, and they'll, they'll try to pitch the narrative that Trump is too divisive, he's too extreme, uh, there's just not enough people that buy into what he's selling, and he can't win. The reality is he's the only Republican that can win. And let's go through a couple of, um, a couple of formulated equations, if you will. I went back and looked yesterday. Um, in 2008, John McCain got 59,948,323,000 votes. In 2012, Mitt Romney got 60,933,504 votes. That's, a, that's an increase of about a million votes from, from McCain to Romney. Some of that's population increase. Some of that would be, I mean, the majority of that would be population increase. And, and maybe Romney performed a little better than than McCain. Um, in 2016, Trump got 62,984,828 votes, an uptick of 2 million. So from 8 to 12, the Republican candidate got a million more votes. From 12 to 16, the Republican candidate got 2 million more votes. So Trump got a pretty good increase, a pretty good uptick from um, 12 to 16. When you go to 20, I mean, we know the story. Trump got nearly 75 million votes. 74,223,975 counted votes. Biden got 82 million or 81 million, 230 some odd thousand. Um, I mean, Supposedly. Just, well, I mean, that's right. I mean, and, and the greatest voter turnout effort in the history of mankind or that man has ever seen or, or didn't see is something I put on Facebook <laughs> yesterday. Didn't see, you know, but, um, but anyway, when you, when you break down those numbers and you try to extrapolate, you know, who is the most likely candidate? There is no doubt that Trump brings baggage. 
I mean, there's no doubt about it. Right. I mean, he's divisive. I mean, he, he can be polarizing. I mean, there, there's no question about that, Josh. But when you start breaking down the data, and here's what Robert provided me with. I said, Robert, what percentage, what percentage of Trump voters are not going to vote for the nominee if it's not Donald Trump? Is it more or less than 30%? I mean, I figure 30% is pretty, pretty close to the number. Robert said it's closer to 40 today. Now, now they may, that, that, he said, I don't have data. I mean, I'm not done that dive. That may be a bit of an embellishment, but, but it's somewhere in the neighborhood of 30%. So, so I went back, and th- th- there's, some, there's some data out there available. Robert referred me uh, to the data. And here's the question. You ready? Um, if Donald Trump is not the nominee, I would still vote for the party nominee. This is Trump voters. If Donald Trump is not the nominee, I would still vote for the party nominee about 57%. Okay. Now, but that's a big ding. That means 43% aren't voting for the nominee. Right. Okay. Um, I would write in Donald Trump, 28%. Remember the 30% that won't answer the question, who is your second choice? There they are. I mean, there they are. If Trump loses the primary, I'm writing in Donald Trump. I'm not trying to rationalize this, Josh. I'm not trying to make sense of it. It doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter what you think. This is what millions of Americans believe about this political movement that they consider themselves a part of. I would consider voting for a third-party candidate, 6.2%. I would consider voting for the Democrat nominee, 4.6%. I would not vote at all, 4.2%. If that number is true, if these statistics are real, there is nobody other than Donald Trump that has any chance at all of beating the Democrats. I mean, if the Democrats duplicate what they did in in 20 and have the greatest voter turnout in the history of mankind or that man has ever seen or not seen, um, it doesn't matter who it is. I mean, the Republicans have to figure out a way to match that get-out-the-vote effort the Democrats have pretty much monopolized in the last two or three election cycles. But but the data's irrefutable. I mean, it just is. It's true that Trump is divisive. It's true that Trump is polarizing. It's also true that he has brought people to the Republican Party that still don't consider themselves to be a part of the Republican Party. And if he's not the nominee, like it or not, they're taking their ball and going home. Oh, in a, yeah. In a high, high, high percentage and I understand he struggles with suburban moms. He struggled with college-educated white voters. He struggles in some of the uh, higher-income district, Republican-leaning districts in America. Okay, but there's not enough soccer moms. There's not enough white-educated voters to offset the working class that won't show up in November 2024 if Trump is not the nominee. I mean, it's a statistical reality. We, we can go deeper into this. It's such an interesting exercise in, um, in statistics and, and analytics and, and politics, to be honest. But, um, but don't buy into this narrative. It's pervasive. It's out there. It's all over the place. Trump can't win. Trump can't win. Trump can't win. Don't nominate Trump. It's a losing cause. A lot of those people are being paid to say that. And in the weirdest way imaginable, I kind of respect that, you know. Pay me to say it, I'll say it. Whether it's true or not, pay me to say it, and I'll say it. The world of politics, Republican politics in particular, is full of that. But but the data's just, uh, I mean, the data doesn't lie. I'm not saying it's indisputable. There's a fair way to dispute it. There's a fair debate to be had. 
about the data. But, but you know, in, in one hand, I've got Donald Trump can't win because he's too extreme. In the other hand, I've got Donald Trump is the only Republican candidate that can win. That's kind of where I lean. Donald Trump is the only candidate today that has a legitimate chance to beat Joe Biden, um, Kamala Harris, or Gavin Newsom, whoever uh, their eventual nominee is. Let's go to the phone, then we'll take a break. We have Verd Oman, chairman of the Marlboro County Republican Party, on the line. Verd, you're on the air. Uh, good morning, Ken. Uh, yeah, tomorrow night I'll be in North Charleston at the Trump new campaign, uh, uh, new office, and uh, watching the debate. And, you know, already uh, around the country, uh, President Trump is viewed as a victim because of the way the corrupt DOJ and, of course, uh, Biden is ultimately responsible for that. So I will, I will look tomorrow night to see how many of those candidates go after President Trump. And and I think what's going to happen if they do, and him not there, uh, that people's going to look at those candidates as they're piling on Trump, too. So I look for the numbers when we come out of debate tomorrow night after President Trump does his interview. Let's see with President Trump's numbers, they continue to go up, and will the other numbers for the other candidates go down. Thank you, Verd. Appreciate that update. 843-661-0937. Um, obviously, we know what Chris Christie will do. I mean, there's no doubt about that. He's, I mean, he's being paid to go after Trump. Right. Um, but but there, there, there are multiple sides to this equation. Let's take our first break of the morning. Rev's not here. It's just Josh and yours truly. We'll kind of delve into this. I want to get Josh's take on um, kind of my instinct, but, but supported by what some of the analytics say. Take a break. Back in just a few minutes. Someone sent me a text a second ago and said, please explain what you mean by conservative ink and the people that get paid to stop Trump from getting elected in our party, in the Republican uh, party. Here's how the games play, Josh. And, uh, and I want to get your take on, am I on to something or not? Okay. Um, you're much younger than I. You'd have a different perspective than I. And I want to hear your perspective. But I want to go back to the text someone sent me a second ago and said, explain this, I mean, getting paid. I mean, it would... Here's the way it works, guys. There, there are a lot of think tanks in Washington. There are a lot of political action groups in Washington that advocate for a cause. They advocate for globalism. They advocate for interventionism. I mean, obviously, they won't say, you know, um, you know, we're getting paid to advocate for globalism. I mean, it'll never be that. But here's the way it works. You got, let's say, principles first. I mean, that, that's a think tank. The Heritage Foundation, the Cato Institute. I mean, some are more reputable than others, but they, they, they are these think tanks. And the think tanks have consultants and lobbyists and, and activists engaged. And they've got websites and they accept donations. But the majority of their money comes from people who are motivated, not in the most sincere fashion. So let's hypothetically say that principles first. I mean, I'm using them because I know a guy that works there. Principles first is kind of an anti-Trump think tank. I mean, they, they don't represent themselves. I mean, obviously, if it's principles first, what am I? I'm principled. I mean, you know, let's let's be principled and then we'll decide what is the best thing to do in America today. But let, let's say that principles first is lobbying for, you know, lax financial oversight. They believe deregulation is the secret to generating prosperity in the American economy. And when you dig a little bit into some of their financials, you find out that they were funded by Goldman Sachs. And J.P. Morgan. I mean, that, that's the ones I'm talking about. And they have so much at stake. I mean, the, the CEO of Goldman Sachs, it will stand behind the podium and say, you know, I want to deregulate finance. 
You know, I want to do this with the Fed. I want no. They they hire people to do the dirty work and the bidding for them. And and who's I mean, who's opposed to principles first? Who who's opposed to American prosperity? It's it's these catchphrases and catch names, but that's how it works. The 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 companies, the political interests will not ever they'll they'll create that barrier, that layer of insulation. I mean, once again, the the CEO of Goldman and J.P. Morgan aren't going to have a press conference tomorrow you know, suggesting to Congress to do X, Y, or Z, they're going to funnel money to some of these political action committees and to some of these think tanks and, and consultings, consultants and, and, and get them to do the work on their behalf. So when Trump shows up, I mean, you built this big machine and the trains run on time and everything goes planned and all of a sudden Trump shows up and he talks about draining the swamp, the game is rigged. Well, he's talking about them. He's, exactly. talking, he's talking about that model. And that model has been unbelievably lucrative to many, many who have gained favor with government. So, so, so that's how that game has worked. When I say the people on Twitter, the people in the media that so vehemently oppose Trump are being paid to po- oppose Trump, it would be, you know, um, person A, who is the lead consultant at Principles First. He's here on the CNN panel. And he would come out and say, well, I mean, the Republicans don't need to nominate Donald Trump because he can't win. He's too extreme. He's too divisive. They're, they're there not to give an honest account. They're there to carry the water for whomever is writing checks to support principles first. That's the way the game is played. And it's enormous amounts of money. And they built this big machine. And this machine is unbelievably um, lucrative. And, and they see Trump as a legitimate threat. More than anything, they see 75 million Americans kind of scratching their head and saying, I don't know, man. I mean, something, you know, the pie's this big. Your share seems to be getting bigger. Your slice of the pie seems to be getting bigger at the expense of mine getting smaller. And that just doesn't make sense to me. You're not making the best widget. You're not dominating the marketplace. But every time I turn around, you know, you're buying a new Learjet or you're buying another home in the Hamptons. That That's the machine I'm talking about. That's how that game is played. And it's unbelievable amounts of money. It's really no different than the military-industrial complex. Very similar to that. Well, I mean, it would be a part of that. The military-industrial complex would be a part of that. That There's a business in America right now. I mean, I'm sorry to say this because it is so so disgusting, but there are people in Washington today that could care less how many Ukrainians and Russians are killed as long as they get the contract to kill, as long as they get the contract to rebuild once everybody's out of gas and tired of fighting. Yep. But there's there's no honor and dignity in this. And that goes back to some people will do anything. Most won't. Most have a kind of line in the sand. And I I can't do that. I can't go there. But when there are billions of dollars at stake, you you tend to kind of cross that line. You just kind of, well, I mean, you justify it, you defend it, you, you know, you know how it is. I mean, you know, somebody's going to do it if we don't do it. That, that's the businesses that depend on government to do certain things a certain way. And, yeah, I mean, the, the American empire, the exporting of the American empire or American imperialism has been unbelievably lucrative. And, and, and once again, you're not going to see the CEO of Raytheon come on, meet the press and talk about him, you know, um, why it's important to equip the Ukrainians. But he's got a consultant. He's got a think tank. The think tank will come on Chuck Todd's show. And they'll talk about, you know, um, uh, Putin and compared to Russia. Excuse me. um, You know what they do? They'll compare to Hitler. Remember David Sachs said yesterday, 
That's the, the line of the neocons. I mean, it's always going to be the next Adolf Hitler. It's going to be, you don't want to be Neville Chamberlain. We'd rather be Churchill, right? Well, I mean, you know, the, the, the CEO of Raytheon it going on George Stephanopoulos' show or CNN or MSNBC and saying, hey, you know, um, we think Putin could be the next Adolf Hitler, but they'll hire these guns and they'll pay enormous amounts of money to consultants and think tanks who go on shows and convince the American public that we got to be careful with Putin. He may be the next Hitler. And we certainly don't want to be Neville Chamberlain. But, but they don't care how many kids are killed in Ukraine or how many killed, killed in, uh, in Russia. I mean, they could care less about any of that. Tucker Carlson actually has some uh, military personnel on his show. Yesterday, uh, we can play a little bit of that today and talks about this was the, I mean, we knew this was going to happen. Ukraine has no, no, no way to beat Russia. But, but there were so many informed voices coming out of Washington that said, you know, if we could only get the Ukrainians another 10 million bucks, if we could only get the Ukrainians this this tank or this this jet fighter, you know, they could eventually. It's not about, we, we don't worry that much about expansionist Russia. I mean, we, we walk NATO to their doorsteps. This is all about money. It's all about power. It's all about who gets the government contract to blow Ukraine to smithereens, and then it gets who, who gets the contract to build it back. That's the game I'm talking about. Those are the people paid to stop Donald Trump from getting elected. Because once again, they're not sure Trump will play ball. That they wonder whether he will honor his commitment to the 75 million Americans who historically have not been very political. And, 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 and the travesty in all of this is the American people are so gullible that they believe someone from um, principles first when they go on CNN or MSNBC or ABC or CBS or do a sit-down with the New York Times, they believe those people to be sincere, that they believe those people to have, you know, honest objectives and to genuinely care about Ukraine. They don't care about Ukraine. They don't give a rat's ass how many Ukrainian kids are killed, how many Russian kids are killed. Do they get the contract or not? Do they right. cash the big check or not? That's what th this empire has been about for you know, a generation or so. And, I mean, it's just a travesty. And all of a sudden, a group of Americans are beginning, becoming questioning uh, of whether they're telling us uh, the truth or not. And if you recall, uh, before uh, after Biden was elected, but before he was inaugurated, Trump ordered the generals to take our troops out of Iraq, Afghanistan, all these places, and they refused. They, which you'd think there'd be some level of accountability, like the generals who are unelected, can refuse the president all of a sudden and no one cares? Well, I mean, but there, I hate to say this, Josh, there, there's a certain degree of dignity that there's no doubt about it. And I'm not saying people in the armed services are crooks, but money's the answer. Now, what's the question? Right. And, and money has become such a, a part of how our politics are conducted in America that it's hard to stand against that. I mean, it really and truly is hard uh, to stand there. Let, let's do this. Um, uh, this is five minutes and 32. Yeah, let's, let's play this. Uh, let's come back and play this. I want to take a break. Okay. I, I want to come back. Um, I told you Vivek Ramaswamy has had a lot of things to say about the trustworthiness or not of our government. That's what you and I are doing. We're, we're publicly questioning government leadership, probably to the extreme. I mean, when I say things like the people in Washington don't care how many Ukrainians die or how many Russian 20 year olds die. I, I, like, wow, dude, you really believe that? Yes, of course I believe that. I absolutely believe that. The majority of people on K Street doing the bidding 
of the military-industrial complex. They don't care how many Ukrainians or Russians die. It's just, you know, a, a part of the game. And, you know, you got to sell military armaments if you're in the business of the military-industrial complex. So let's, um, I want to come back. I told you Ramaswamy has really had some interesting things um, to say. He sat down yesterday with, um, what's her name, Caitlin, uh, the one that interviewed Trump. Anyway, her first name is Caitlin. She's on CNN. We'll come back. Josh will cue that. We'll go straight there instead of back to me. Back in just a few moments. Gave an interview to, you said, quote, I think it is legitimate to say how many police, how many federal agents were on the planes that hit the Twin Towers. Maybe the answer is zero. It probably is zero for all I know, right? I have no reason to think it was anything other than zero. But if we're doing a comprehensive assessment of what happened on 9-11, we have a 9-11 commission. Absolutely, there should be an answer the public knows the answer to. Explain to me what you meant there. This is really, it's funny. I mean, the Atlantic is playing the same game as CNN. It's funny. What I said is, on January 6th, I do believe that there were many federal agents in the field, and we deserve to know who they are. On 9-11, what I've said is that the government lied. And this is incontrovertible evidence, Caitlin. The government lied about Saudi Arabia's involvement. There was a Saudi spy named Al-Bayoumi, who they lied, and the government lied, and the 9-11 Commission lied. We know that because declassified reports in 2021 Which revealed President that Al-Bayoumi was indeed... What's that? Yeah, the report that the President Biden declassified. Yes. But your quote here, are you telling me that the quote is wrong later, here? 20 years later, yeah. But are you telling me that I'm your quote, you quote is wrong, wrong here because actually. it says... How many federal actually, agents were on the plane in the Twin Towers? <laughs> yeah, when I, when I actually, and this is just lifting the curtain on how media works again, I asked that reporter to send the recording because it was on the record. He refused to do it. But we had a free-flowing conversation. The truth is there are lies the government has told about 9-11, but it's not the ones that somebody put in my mouth. It's the one that I articulated, which is that Saudi Arabia, absolutely, their intelligence was involved in 9-11. And that's a difficult thing you're not supposed to say. The facts back that up. Separately, as it relates to January 6th, same story all over again. There were federal agents in the field. I think they've lied about how many there were. And we, the people, deserve the truth, okay, despite the layers of distortion that you, exist in the media to prevent us from getting You're it. saying that you were misquoted here. So we will take you at your word. Yes. You're saying you're, that you were misquoted here. But yeah. you were asked another time recently about whether or not 9-11 was an inside job. This is what your response was. 9-11, inside job, or uh, exactly how the government tells us? I don't believe the government has told us the truth. Again, I'm driven by evidence and data. What I've seen in the last several years is we have to be skeptical of what the government does tell us. I haven't seen evidence to the contrary, but do I believe everything the government told us about it? Absolutely not. Do I two believe the 9-11 Commission? Absolutely not. I mean, Vic, I think people look at those comments. They look at what you said in the Atlantic, which you say you were misquoted. They look at comments that you've made about the Federal Reserve adding zeros to media companies' bank accounts. And, I mean, it looks like you're floating conspiracy theories with this defense of I'm just asking questions. Well, when you actually quote me, those are my words and I stand by them. So somebody else quoting me, putting words in my mouth, I have a problem with. But those words I stand by. You want to know why? Because we literally know the FBI, the 9-11 Commission, the U.S. government on down told us specifically that Saudi Arabia had no involvement. 20 plus years later, quietly declassifying documents showing that not only did Saudi Arabia have involvement, it was a Saudi intelligence agent that received two of those terrorists that crashed planes on 9-11, killing Americans But the Americans question was, is 9-11 American an soil, inside job? And, and you didn't say no. Caitlin, That's what you I just think people are Caitlin, looking you at. Caitlin, you, you know what's really funny? 
you literally just played that, and you could play it for your audience again. He said, or do you believe everything the government has told us? And my answer was, I do not believe everything the government has told us but you see, because the they point, lied. The point is and that I know this game comes open. up, Caitlin, it, every time there's game. an outsider who comes in. It leaves the door open, Vivek. <laughs> it leaves the door open, and someone who's Caitlin, a 9-11 truther looks at that and says, that's, that's exactly lies. what I believe. You that think the government's a, lying about 9-11? I think the government has systematically and for a very long time lied about 9-11. And I think I'm what the only presidential exactly candidate who has told us the about? truth. Saudi Arabia's involvement. It is absolutely true. But you don't that think Saudi that 9-11 was an was inside job, correct? Of course not. And I've okay. never said it. <laughs> but but the but media filters do create answer. a lot of falsehoods. It's not falsehoods, a media filter. You have to stop blaming the media. We're, I'm asking you about comments that you have made. And I'm telling you that the comments I made, the ones you just played, are indeed what I believe which was not that 9-11 was an inside job, but that Saudi Arabia absolutely was involved, and our government for 20 years lied to the American people about there it. There was an entire 9-11 commission fact, report actually. on this. Yes, and it, will, and it lied, and it was false. And in fact, you know where that's coming out, Caitlin? There's now a case, a federal case in the Southern District of New York, where the government of Saudi Arabia is being sued by victims of families. Know, that's families. why this is yes. resurfacing itself. It is relevant, and it turns out. But there's out a difference in, in asking questions about Saudi Arabia's involvement and the government's involvement, and then pushing this idea that whenever what your comment about who was on the plane and then was 9/11 an inside job, where you did not say no earlier. That's why it's important to clarify those comments, because otherwise it feels like you're towing at the line when it comes to conspiracy theories. Caitlin, I, it is. I, I, I am guilty as charged that I do not follow the establishment super PAC donor approved script on these questions, but I am speaking truth, grounded in fact, at every step of the way, and that's what's really elicited something of an anaphylactic reaction of the kind we saw in 2016 against a different candidate. But this time, I'm going to be grounded in principles and conviction, not just vengeance and grievance, well, which is exactly how we will reunite this country. That's just simply what we were asking for. But Vivek Ramaswamy will yes. leave it there. Thanks so much for your time tonight. See, there's so much more here, guys. The, the, the story here is not what Ramaswamy said. The story is how willing CNN is to carry the government's water. I mean, that state, what is the difference in that in Pravda? I mean, in all honesty, what is the difference in what CNN just did and what state-run media historically has done? I mean, Ramaswamy is saying as clearly as he can, I never said 9-11 was an inside job, but the 9-11 commission left out crucial facts that Saudi Arabia was deeply involved. It didn't fit the corporate narrative. It didn't fit the establishment narrative. And, and what the reason I wanted you to hear that was not necessarily what Ramaswamy had to say, but that is, I mean, that's Baghdad Bob. I mean, that, that's CNN basically acting as an extension of the federal government. And, and when did that happen? I mean, to me, Ramaswamy, if the government is, excuse me, if the media is doing its job, they are to encourage skepticism of our government. I mean, that's what Jefferson believed was so crucially important. Who holds the government important if the media decides that they're going to defend government at every turn, and they try to paint him as a 9-11 a truther. Did you hear that? I mean, she said, yeah. you know, some people will perceive you as a 9-11 truther. I don't know anybody that perceives Ramaswamy as a 9-11 truther. He basically said, I don't think 9-11 was an inside job, but I don't trust the 9-11 commission. And she said something that I found very interesting. She said, like, uh, I forget her exact wording, but, like, when you say things like that, it makes you seem like a conspiracy theorist, which that statement in of itself kind of implies her bias against questioning the government. But, but 
okay, why? What? See, that's where we've got to get. Why is CNN, MSNBC, Fox, I mean, you know, why are all these networks, why are all these media entities and enterprises so hell-bent on defending the government narrative? I assume because they're in on the tape. Well, I, mean, I, I don't know. I, mean, I, I just think those are the questions that Donald Trump asked. That's the question that Vivek Ramaswamy is asking. And it's obvious how defensive CNN, because this lady doesn't say that, I mean, CNN blesses her. I mean, she doesn't make it up as she goes. I can assure you of that. There's a corporate narrative. And she's to oblige. I mean, she's to she's obligated to that corporate narrative. And and what I wanted you to hear um, was just. I mean, it, it sounds like the former Soviet Union. It sounds like the Chinese Communist Party. It really and truly does. When someone enters the political stage and says things controversial and out of the mainstream, they've got to be dealt with. So what we're going to do is label that person a conspiracy theorist and a nine eleven truther. When, when he basically, I mean, it redundantly said, I just believe that the American people have been lied to about Saudi Arabia's involvement in what happened on 9-11. Guess what? Mo- most people who have dug into this a little bit believe that exact same thing. But but the, the casual consumer of political news, the Seinfeld watcher, I mean, they're trying to convince that person that this guy's a conspiracy theorist at every turn. He's one of these crazy 9-11 truthers. And, and that's just not the... That's not what he said. That's not what he represented. It's a and cheap way to discredit him. Sure, but but it's state-run media, guys. It's the media not questioning government, but, but validating everything they say to be true. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. Someone held on during the break. Let's go to the phone. We got Breeze. Breeze, you're on the air. You're right, kid. You know, the media is not liberal. They work for the cathedral, which is a hybrid version of fascism, fascism, national law, socialism, and communism. The difference, the hybrid version is now the state, which everything revolved around, is now involved, it started the state, is now run by these globalist corporations. So, you know, if you think about it, the media was the reason Lyndon Baines Johnson couldn't run again for a second term due to Vietnam. Lyndon Johnson was a Democrat, surprisingly a corrupt one, but he was a Democrat. And they really opened the door for Nixon. So then the next question would become, was Watergate, if you want to go down that hole, was Watergate more, was was the cathedral behind Watergate to get rid of Nixon? Because Nixon never ordered Watergate. But I'm telling you, this stuff has been going on forever, and it's all uh, it, it is all the cathedral. Now, here's the question I was, I was, I was going to ask today. I said, you know, now the cathedral media, you know, is now called pumping the, pumping the word out that everybody needs to start putting on their masks again. Everybody needs to start getting more and more boosters. So, so my question is, I wonder if guys like Jeff, because if you could take a guy like Jeff seriously, who's, Unfortunately, he's the only liberal, not liberal, a Democrat that calls into the show. How am I going to take the guy seriously after all this has been going on? If he's going to still be wearing, willing to wear a mask, and if he's still going to be sitting there promoting the vaccine and all that. Now, my next question is: All these doctors that were telling you how irresponsible you are were for yeah for not getting the shot. Are they going to be calling you this time around? and say, kid, you need to be telling everybody to wear their mask and get their booster shots. 
I wondered how many Americans are going to, going to be compliant with this and how many of them are going to acquiesce to the government cathedral fascist state demands with these huge corporations making billions of dollars, like you said, getting richer and richer while we're getting poorer and poorer. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate it. And to that point, I mean, Josh doesn't screen calls. Josh doesn't hold up a note to me to say, hey, this person wants to talk about this. The one thing that I think we do here, now we do it on a much smaller scale. We don't have a national footprint. We don't have international influence by any stretch of the imagination. But the one thing we do is allow debate. We have these conversations. I don't dislike Williams or Jeff or anybody else who calls in and disagrees with my opinion. I make no bones about it. I'm, I'm right of center. I mean, I don't even know what conservatism means anymore. I mean, I, I'm right of center. In, in other words, I believe in the, in, the, in the, ingenious, the ingenious of the private sector and the more liberated the private sector is, I think the better off the nation will be. Now, I'm, I'm not, you know, I can go there, but I, I accept that the wild, wild west is dangerous. I mean, that, that goes back to the, is, is capitalism and economic theory or an idol? I, I'll admit, I said it yesterday, I probably treated it too much as an idol for most of my business life. Um, I've accepted now that there has to be some implementation of guardrails, but, but the one thing we do here is allow discourse. We allow debate. Jeff and I disagree for 15 minutes. Uh, too long for a lot of you. I accept that. I think it's good for radio um, to have somebody call in with dissenting opinions and, and a different worldview. That's what the media has historically done. And, and Breeze is exactly right. The media in its best day treated LBJ and Vietnam just as they treated Nixon and Watergate. That they didn't see that through a political lens. It was they didn't have a job to do to to thwart one candidate and, and uphold another and you know try to stop this guy from getting elected and 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 help this other person um get elected. I mean I think the you know I make no bones about it. I'm somewhat conservative. The liberal is some excuse me the media is somewhat somewhat liberal. But but I think what Ramaswamy says just give us the facts. Give us the truth. I mean if Saudi Arabia was intimately involved in 9/11 the American people deserve to know. It doesn't mean he thinks there was a, you know, kind of an inside job. If the counteroffensive in Ukraine didn't go in well, then let's tell the American people. But, but once again, the cathedral has amassed so much influence over the voices that most Americans listen to, and it moves as one. I mean, that's the notion of the cathedral. It's, it's this huge glacier, and it all moves as one. And if, and if the counteroffensive in Ukraine was to work, then, and it doesn't, nobody knows it doesn't work. I mean, that, that's important because, you know, Josh let it be kind of funny a second ago when, when I said, you know, we're, we're talking about human lives. I mean, we're talking about Ukraine and Russia. I mean, do you believe that a, you know, an 18-year-old in Ukraine matters as much as an 18-year-old in America? Of course he does. But, but and, and the American people deserve to hear if we're, if we're supporting something to the tune of $123 billion, what are we getting for that? And, and we were told for, you know, a year that this spring counteroffensive would be the game changer. You know what, what we're not being told? Then it hasn't worked. It simply has not worked as planned. And I mean, that, that would imply to the American people we made a real bad decision here. We made a real bad investment. Now, now here, I, I showed you 
before the break what CNN does in advancing the the government's narrative. I mean, they, they're not challenging power. That they're not. They're. I mean, that they were there to make Ramaswamy look like a fringe candidate. I mean, that's what CNN decided they were going to do. Um, you know, a 9-11 truther, conspiracy theorist. Those words aren't accidental. I mean, they're, they're very intentional. Ramaswamy said, I'm not saying 9-11 was an inside job. What I am saying is the federal government lied to us about Saudi Arabia's involvement in what happened at 9-11, but in the matter of political expediency. Now, now here's the question. Did Saudi Arabia reach out to the American government and say, hey, I know we had a big hand in this, but I would rather it not be in that report. I mean, I think that's the way the world works. I mean, I do. I think that's the way the game is played. Let, let, let's show you another model of news. Um, I mean, this is the guy that got fired from Fox News. I mean, this is probably one of the most influential pundits slash journalists in America today. I mean, he's got a job now, but it's his own him. I mean, it's just kind of his own entity. Tucker on Twitter, I think is what they're calling it. But um, Colonel Douglas McGregor has been about as accurate on foreign affairs and American diplomacy as anybody I know of. Um, why is he not on CNN? Why is he not on some of the Sunday morning shows? Josh, can you put us in queue? Yep, we're okay. good to go. Let's go there. Here's um, Colonel Douglas MacArthur. Sassen described the state of the war in Ukraine right now. That's an important question, and not enough people have good answers at this point. I think all of the lies that have been told for more than a year and a half about the Ukrainians are winning, the Ukrainian cause is just, the Russians are evil, the Russians are incompetent, all of that is collapsing. And it's collapsing because what's happening on the battlefield is horrific. The Ukrainians now, we think, have lost 400,000 men killed in battle. Uh, we were talking about 300, 350,000 a few months ago. Within the last month of this supposed counteroffensive, which was to sweep the battlefield, they lost at least 40,000 killed. We don't even know how many people have been wounded, but we know that probably upwards of 40 to 50,000 soldiers are amputees. We know the hospitals are full. And we know that Ukrainian units at the platoon and company level, that's with anywhere from 50 to 150 to 200 men, are in piecemeal fashion surrendering to the Russians. Not because they don't want to fight, it's because they can't fight anymore. They have so many wounded, they can't evacuate them. And commanders are saying, well, if I can't evacuate my wounded, I'm going to surrender because otherwise the wounded will die. And so they call the Russians, and they, they all speak Russian, and tell them on the radio, look, I, I've got 50, 60 wounded here. I'm going to surrender because I don't want them to be killed. And the Russians from the very beginning have always treated the Ukrainian soldiers very fairly and very gently. And so they know they're not going to be abused or mistreated. They know they can actually be exchanged for Russian prisoners in the future. So they surrender. And I think we're going to see this army that we've been spending so heavily on increasingly melt away. And at the same time as we're talking, if you look at this long banana-shaped strip of territory in southern Ukraine that the Russians control, if you go to the north eastern corner of that, south of this city called Kharkiv, there are major offensive operations taking place there right now. And the Ukrainian forces are being swept away in front of the Russians. And again, all of this, all of this happens in a way that is just not reported in the West. And in the meantime, rather than admit that this is a terrible tragedy that should be ended on humanitarian grounds, if no other, 
that the killing should stop. As President Trump said, stop the killing. We're going to continue. I mean, I said Douglas MacArthur. I meant Douglas McGregor before we went to the uh, to the to the bit. But that's just. I mean, wh- why aren't we hearing that in the mainstream? I mean, is right. it true? What once again, is it true? I don't know. We're not having a debate. I mean, Douglas McGregor knows what he's talking about. It's obvious that he's somewhat of a. Um, I mean, he's a colonel. He he's a he's someone who gives his opinion on uh, political slash military endeavors. Uh, whether they're warranted or not, how do we score this? How are we are we progressing as as planned or not? But remember, Josh, how all of us were sold on the spring counteroffensive. The Russians are on the ropes. Putin is about to lose control. And if we can only support the counteroffensive, and I'm not I'm not defending because this is what CNN would say. So you're defending the Russian invasion? No, I'm not defending the Russian invasion. I can't stop Russia from. Uh, being expansionist but but i can't accept the realities on the ground and it's barbaric and young men in ukraine both russian and ukrainian are being slaughtered yep and we're continuing to advance a narrative that this this counteroffensive is a must nato must control russia and i mean how many how many senators kids are getting blown to smithereens how many how many executives at goldman sachs have kids that, that are dying on the Ukrainian uh, in, in the Ukrainian Russian affront. I mean, that, that, once again, let's have a debate about it. Look, it, it's easier it's easier to lie to somebody than convince them they're being lied to. And, and a lot of people, out of the goodness of their heart and some degree of naivete, they buy into these things they're told. I mean, how many Ukrainian flags and Ukrainian profiles and I mean, it's honorable. It's, it's, you know, you feel good about yourself. When, when big, bad Russia comes knocking on the door and Ukraine defends itself as, 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 as aggressively and passionately as it can. I mean, I get that, the human expression. I mean, we're, we're gullible that way. But, but the realities are it's barbaric and people are being slaughtered. Young men are losing their lives. I'm not saying senselessly because I don't know enough about what, what's happening on the ground. But why is Colonel Douglas McGregor not allowed to participate in the debate about what's happening in Ukraine and should America be involved? What, what, is it time to work on some diplomatic solution? I mean, you know who's discouraged diplomacy? The Americans. I mean, there was to be a meeting in, in Israel between Ukraine and Russia, and the Americans nixed it. Why? I mean, why? ask yourself why is that? We're not angels, guys. I mean, we're motivated very often by things that are not sincere and i'm not saying what should or should not happen in ukraine i don't know it's complicated it's extremely complicated but we were told and many of you were convinced that this spring counteroffensive would put putin in his place and it has not worked and you know what we've not been told how miserable a failure the spring offensive is and how your $123 billion is not being effectively spent. I mean, that, that's the reality. And it doesn't mean I'm defending Russia invading a sovereign nation. But there's nothing I can do about Russia invading a sovereign nation. Russia has their reasons. Ukraine has their reasons. But America nixed diplomacy a year ago. Right. We, we've talked about that. I mentioned the... The frozen sea thing, and we I think we listened to some audio yesterday about it, that 
I'm not totally convinced of anything, but how come we're not allowed to ask the question of whether or not Russia was provoked into this? But doesn't that go to the cathedral? Exactly. When, when, when everything is controlled by one voice, and one voice speaks, you ready, as one, and the vaccine works, the lockdowns work, the shutdowns work, the vaccine has no side effects. Yeah. Uh, you know, the counteroffensive works. Russia's bad. Ukraine's good. I mean, they, they know how naive and gullible the American public are. They know how easily swayed we are. And, and they prey upon our emotions. And once again, why not have debates? I mean, let's have a debate about the seriousness of, you know, the vaccine, lockdown, shutdown, um, Dr. Fauci and his grants, you know, the Wuhan virology lab. I mean, how many debates are we honestly having? about these very critical issues. We're not having any. We're not allowed to. No, we're not. Bingo. I mean, if you can't win the debate, let's just censor the debate. Let's not allow the debate to take place. So Colonel Douglas McGregor just, just explained in the, the most emphatic way, it's, it's failing. And people are being slaughtered because of it. I mean, does the media not have an obligation to tell the American people that despite your $123 billion investment, the Ukrainians are being slaughtered and they're surrendering in mass numbers because they're so injured and they believe the Russian army will treat them fairly. That's just not out there because it doesn't fit this predisposed narrative of Russia bad, excuse me, Russia bad, yeah, and, and Ukraine good. Let's go to the phone. We have Sam calling from Darlington. Sam, you're on the air. Good morning, guys. Uh, Good topic. I um, I would ag agree certainly that the that the offensive or counteroffensive is certainly failing. Um, and I also saw something even in I think it was in one of the mainstream places, New York Times or something, talking about how uh, Zelensky is. You know that this is they're drafting soldiers, and you know and and people are trying to escape the draft uh, any way they can. It's not a. It's not like uh, there's a big volunteer army going rushing to the front lines, uh, and it's under martial. Ukraine is under martial law, and it's also pretty obvious to me. It seems obvious to me that the Ukrainian government, which is which is compelling its men to fight, uh, is actually controlled by the United States. Um, what do you call it? military industrial complex empire you know so when i say i don't say i want to cut aid to ukraine i say i want to cut aid to the united states um you know neocon empire builders over there it's uh but i think the more the more people talk you about hello sam people, i don't know what that was the more people talk <laughs> about this the, the better uh, the better the outcome may be in the future. Thank, Thank you. you, Sam. Appreciate that. And that's my point, guys. I mean, th there are important and crucial issues issues central to America, the well-being of the American public. I got to believe that most Americans care about Ukraine and Russia. Most Americans understand that there's somewhat of an interest there, but to what degree of commitment is required to address our interest? And I think Sam's exactly right. Zelensky's not the president of Ukraine. 
I mean, he's a puppet for America. I mean, that's exactly what he is. And, I mean, they're having to draft people. They're having a lot of um, resistance by younger Ukrainians saying, I'm not signing up for that. I mean, that's a death wish. You know, that that's a death mission. I mean, I don't care how much you love your sovereign nation. Very few sign up for a, a death wish. I mean, very few sign up knowing that there's zero chance to have success. I mean, give me a fighting chance. How many times have we heard that? Well, right now, it's looking like the Ukrainians don't have a fighting chance, but for a year and a half, the American media, in conjunction with the military-industrial complex and the political body, have told the American people, Putin's on the ropes. Putin's on the run. Putin's in his last days. And now we're told that 400,000 Ukrainian men, and I guess women to some degree, have lost their lives. And many, many Ukrainian commanders are on the radio, informing the Russians that they'll surrender because they believe they'll get fairly treated. It's complex. Take a break. Back in a few. If you Google Ukraine spring offensive, you find articles from April, from May, from June, from May, from July, from June, from June, from June, from April, from May, from June, from May, from April, from April, from April. From April, from June, from June, <laughs> from April, from May, from... Yeah, okay. Nothing recent. If Ooh, you Google lot. Ukraine Spring Offensive, all the articles about how successful this is going to be are, are just consistent. I mean, it, it's the cathedral. It's one. I mean, it's, 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 the, it's, the company, it's the company line. There's been no correction. There's been no expansive coverage of how miserably it's failed and how many Ukrainians and Russians have lost their lives. I mean, if, if the American media are that interested in the truth and American taxpayers have invested $123 billion in advancing this, this um, spring offensive that was going to put Putin on the ropes. Lloyd Austin said that Putin could be swept out of power. Um, that's what he said in April. Could be swept out of power. It seems that Putin is as strong as he's ever been in Russia, and the mainstream media, the American political media, have decided to just pay it no attention at all since it began its noticeable failure. Let's go to the phone. We have Jay calling from Nichols. Jay, you're on the air. Hi, guys. Um, I don't know if you guys know anybody in Ukraine or not and have ever spoken to them, but I have. I do know people in Ukraine. I know people that are serving. Uh, the figures that you got today were a load of poo. Uh, yeah, the Ukrainians have lost a lot of people. Somewhere around fifty to 60,000 dead and probably three to four times that injured. If you look at some of the uh, reporting that you'll get that shows the uh, Russian losses, they're somewhere up in 260,000 KIA, and multiply that by three or four times for the injured. Uh, Ukraine has fought, and when they started, all they had was hand-me-downs from the old Soviet Union. And they've taken back half of the land that the Russians had occupied. I think that's pretty good. Now, the Spring Offensive is a misnomer. Anybody that knows anything about Ukraine knows that you can't fight in the spring or the fall 
because the mud keeps you from moving. So you think the colonel's lying? I think the colonel's misinformed. And you're better informed than the colonel? I've talked to people that are serving. Well, I mean, I've, I've talked to people who know what or, or, or say they're familiar with, with what's happening there. They contradict what you're saying. I'm not saying you're, 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 you're not telling the truth. I, why aren't we having the debate? I mean, it, in other words, uh, the media that told us the spring offensive was going to be so effective are not updating us as to how effective uh, the, the spring counteroffensive has. That leads me to believe that something's not going as planned. Well, and the media called it a spring offensive. And the Ukrainians... Well, I mean, the American the American away. military leadership called it a spring offensive. Correct. The Ukrainian the, the Ukrainian military leadership called it a spring counteroffensive. And when did the president say they were going to start? But, I mean, what, what you're arguing... That's not you're, the spring. But you're arguing that you're telling the truth and everybody else is being fundamentally dishonest, and that, that's just... That's out there. I mean, you're on a limb. You may be on the right limb, but you're certainly on a limb. Well, well when did... When did the president of Ukraine say they were going to start the spring offensive? He said June, May, late May, early June. That's not the spring. The spring is April. So you think you, 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 you're, you're arguing that Ukraine is making significant advances and has Russia on the ropes? I'm not saying they've got Russia on the ropes. And I'm saying that we've trained them for combined arms offensives. Okay, what does combined arms offensive have? They have artillery, armor, infantry, and air power. We gave them three, but not the fourth, the most important one of it. We have never won a war where we haven't controlled the air. We won't give them the ability to control their airspace. Do we owe them that? I think we do. Okay. You and I disagree. I mean, I just don't. I fundamentally yeah, I don't know. believe that. I we, know you disagree because you don't agree that when somebody in our government says that we're going to support their sovereignty and we make a commitment that we don't need to hold that commitment. Well, I mean, we, we just have you a fundamental that? disagreement That's, about. No, we have a but, fundamental. I respect your opinion, but we have a fundamental disagreement about where American safety and security is at risk. I don't think it's at risk on the Ukrainian-Russian border. You obviously do. And that is a fair and legitimate disagreement. I'm not saying whether it's at risk or not. I'm saying, did we keep our word or not? But I mean, is our is our foreign policy going to be driven by keeping our word or where make American safety and security is at risk? You're a businessman. You make an agreement with a company and they don't hold their word. Are you ever going to do business with them? I, I understand again? that, no. but but why did we it's make it? The a, same thing. Well, it, it's, it's the same thing. Why it's did our, we make an agreement? to protect someone if it's not an American security interest. It was an American security interest. We got them to give up the nuclear weapons that were left in their country by the Soviet Union. We got them to denuclify. If they had nuclear weapons, you, the Russians wouldn't have went in there. Fair enough. That's what we said. Well, I mean, and you're not by we, yourself. There are many people who believe exactly what you believe. And I respect that, and you'll always have an opportunity to express that. Yeah, but we made an agreement, and we're not man enough to stand up and do what we said we were going to do. But, but okay, they but never, they've never asked for us to put our men and our women in danger over there. They just asked for the weapons so they can 
win. If we made, if we make an agreement and we realize how bad the agreement was, should we keep that, the agreement despite knowing how bad the agreement was? Well, you said you wouldn't go in and support Poland, so you need to tell Poland today that you're not going to support them. Well, it, you don't need to string them along and think that they've got an agreement that they don't have. Well, I mean, I, I, I probably would. You, I mean, said I, that last, you said that two weeks ago. Yeah, and I'll stand by that. Absolutely. Well, our country did not stand up and say no. No, no, no. You're, you're, you're mischaracterizing that. Our country has never agreed to this. Some of yes, our political leaders, no, it has not. Some of our political leadership has been influenced by the military-industrial complex into convincing Americans this is in our safety and security, and Americans becoming highly skeptical. I mean, when you look at the polling, that the Americans are very skeptical of its military-slash-political leadership, but to suggest that Americans signed up for this, that's just not the truth. If you told the American people that if Russia invaded Ukraine tomorrow, our men and women would be activated, and there's a chance your kid could die on the Poland-Russian border. Do you really believe the American people would support that? That's what we've signed up for for 70 years but, now. But, that, but that's the point I'm making. I mean, you know, our, our political leadership has signed up for a lot of things that the Americans aren't supportive of. So, so you're saying that most of America doesn't support our commitment to NATO? Most of Americans have no idea that if Russia were to invade Poland tomorrow, it would call for an activation of our troops. We would have boots on the ground on the Polish-Russian border. They're, they're, the, the overwhelming majority of Americans would be opposed to that. Well, yeah. but, but we disagree. Thank you for the call. Appreciate it. And he, I mean, it, those are very legitimate points. That Those are very interesting arguments to make. I just have a different opinion about, you know, w we made a commitment. Okay, we, we made a commitment to NATO, but is the commitment in perpetuity? Can the commitment be revisited? I think it's time to revisit America's commitment to NATO. Right. And I, I, I'm on the record. I don't deny that I said that a couple of weeks ago. I'll say it again. I am, I am very supportive of America reconsidering its commitment to NATO. I think we remain a member, but, but I think we withdraw some of the extensive commitments that we've made in the name of American safety and security. I mean, there's a big debate out there now about is NATO an anti-Russia, transnational, you know, um, <laughs> uh, expansionist organization. That's kind of ironic, dealing with the Russians. Uh, 843-661-0937. Let's go to the phone. All right. We got Barry from Girard calling. Barry, you're on the air. Hey, Ken. Good morning, by the way. Um, to the last caller, um, it's also our government's responsibility to secure the borders. How's that working out? Um, we're American citizens, and the border's being overran by illegals from every country in the world, mostly Chinese. So we're depleting our ammunition and munitions in Ukraine. Our strategic oil has now been drained to the lowest it's been in 40 years. So to buy it back, we have to buy it back at $75 a barrel than, than 35 But we want to go give Ukraine everything else to defeat Russia, which... We created the war in 2012 by overthrowing the Ukrainian government under Obama. 
Well, I mean, this is an American government. I mean, Zelensky's an American-appointed president of Ukraine. And, and, and exactly. And we're co- so there's bio labs that we produced in Ukraine. Um, the, Zelensky is locking up pastors and bishops and whatever you know religious items. They have Nazis fighting for them, and we're supposed to support this because you know we're Nazis. Trump supporters are Nazis, but we're supporting actual Nazis in Ukraine to fight Russia. And we allow NATO to crush the German economy by blowing up Nord Stream pipeline. See, all this is connected, like me and Bree say all the time. It's It's the World Economic Forum, the New World Order. It's all connected. So, I mean, I'm not. I'm not for sending. I'm retired. I'm not for sending troops over there. They're they're already in in Poland. They're waiting. There's fifty thousand probably in Poland from the United States waiting in Poland. So if we send aircraft, it's on. I mean, it's going to be on. We're in. We send the aircraft. We send the F-16s like they say they're going to do. We're going to World War Three. But Barry, under the current agreement, and the caller was right. Under the current agreement, if Russia invades Poland, it's on. Yes. I mean, as far as we're and, and I and I understand his. He is basically arguing that we made a commitment. We, we've got to be a nation of our word. And if our deal with NATO is what it is, it, you, you, you got to follow through on that. I just think there's a reason to revisit NATO. I agree. I, I, I just think it. Thank you, Barry. Appreciate it. I just think it's time for America to better understand its foreign policy. I think the caller made valid points. I think he defends his position as honorably as as you can. I didn't cut him off or disrespect him. I don't think I did. Um, and, and he said, you know, you said a couple of weeks ago that you would be in favor of America not honoring its commitment if indeed Poland were invaded. I stand by that. I, I, I don't deny that I said that. I, I, I'll repeat it again. I think it's time for American leadership to revisit its commitment to NATO to better understand with clarity what, what some of the European nations associated with NATO's commitments are. What was some of the American and Canadian commitments? I mean, I think the only two nations not in Europe that are members of NATO are American and Canada. I could be wrong, but I think I'm right there. But no, I mean, I think there's a legitimate debate. And this is kind of what we talked about an hour ago. I mean, talk radio allows for these debates. I mean, why doesn't Meet the Press allow for that debate? Why doesn't George Stephanopoulos allow for that debate? There's a question about whether Ukraine and the spring offensive is failing miserably. There's a question about the number of young men fighting in the name of Ukraine's sovereignty are dead. Let, let's and, get to the bottom of that. The, these, are, the, these are critically important questions. We got $123 billion of taxpayer, do, taxpayer money that, that's been invested into helping Ukraine defend itself. What, what are we getting for that investment? What, what is the accounting for that investment? I mean, th- those are valid questions, considerations, concerns. Let's, let's get to the bottom of it. I'm not saying that I, I, I am I am 100% right that my opinion is the only opinion we should have. Of course not. I mean, there are a lot of other opinions. There are far more informed opinions than I have. But we don't have that conversation. And when you Google Ukrainian Spring Offensive, all the articles are from April, May, June. There are no articles in September, excuse me, in August, about whether or not the Spring Offensive is working or not. That leads me to believe it's failing miserably. Some of the insiders that, that, that I trust are saying, you know, it's, it's failing miserably. Now, now, you can believe Douglas McGregor or not. 
You can believe the caller or not. But, but the reality is the media and body politic told us that the spring offensive would put Putin on the run. I don't see any example of that being the case. And if I could address Jay's overall point, he was talking about how, you know, 70 years ago, some government, U.S. government official made a promise. But like you and me, at least, I don't know what Jay thinks, but you and me believe that we should not suffer for the sins of the father, i.e. American slavery. So why should we be held up to the promises of them, too? I mean, so like, should I go and fight in Poland or Ukraine? Because someone made a promise to them before I was even born? Well, that's the logic he's using. Now, exactly. I, I'm a Jeffersonian, and Jefferson famously said uh, w- one of the biggest abuses of political privilege and power is to encumber future generations with things that you thought were the way things should be done. And it goes back to my central, my central point is I think America needs to reconsider its standing in position in relation to NATO. Fundamentally. Fundamentally, re, re, readdress or, or, or reconsider or, or or have some sort of um, debate about what Americans are comfortable with. It, it's not it's not six or eight politicians in America's right, in concert with the military industrial complex, to decide you know what what 335 million Americans support. That's just not the way liberty, freedom, and the pursuit of happiness works. Take a break. Back in a few. The most interesting part of this is the human psychology that it takes to believe or not. So, you know, my early life was shaped by Vietnam. I mean, I was born in 63. I can remember as a young kid, Josh, watching television with my parents, believing that that's where I die in that jungle. I mean, you know, 28 minutes of news and 24 minutes of uh, coverage of Vietnam. So, So the people that brought you Vietnam or kind of sort of the same people that brought you Iraq, kind of sort of the same people that brought you Afghanistan, and you're still not highly skeptical? Yeah. I mean, that, that's the human psychology part of this. I, I guess some people will believe someone because they have authority in a nice suit. <laughs> I mean, in all honesty, I mean, what, what possesses someone to believe that the American government is shooting us straight about the, the involvement in Ukraine? This is the same government, not the same people, but the same order. It's probably a little more advanced now that that began in my life. I mean, I don't know what happened before then, but in my life, it was Vietnam. And then it was pretty much, um, you know, the Middle East, Ukraine, the war on terror and, you know, weapons of mass destruction. And we know how that worked out. Um, And then it was Afghanistan and the, the body politic defended the withdrawal from Afghanistan, despite kids hanging off the side of airplanes and Americans being left behind. You know, the Democrats defended withdrawal in Afghanistan. And, uh, you know, Biden said, I would do it again the same way we did it this time. And now you've got Ukraine and you've got a, an enormous amount of coverage about a pending spring offensive. The spring offensive happens and there's no more coverage. But, but, but some humans are not, I guess, innately skeptical and they kind of like being led around and, and, you know, spoon fed nuggets and bits and pieces of information. I'm not saying Jay is that. I'm just saying a lot of Americans and, and you know, people in power know that. Uh, and they just kind of blindly fall in line. Let's go to the phone. Do we have time? A little bit. Okay. Uh, about a, a little over a minute. Jack from Sumter, you're on the air. Hey, um, so I fully support the um, 
the, the agreement that we made in 1994 between the U.S., the Russians, and the Ukrainians, uh, we basically guaranteed their uh, their borders so long as the they gave up their nuclear weapons. And uh, you know, I mean, if we if Russia reneged on that, if we reneged, then I mean, I completely agree with the previous caller who uh, said that we need to keep our commitments. One of the big um, problems people had with President Obama was he did not do that when he drew a red line in Syria. And then now we have Russia hanging out in Syria. They've been there ever since. Fair enough. Thank you, sir. Appreciate that. 843-661-0937. We've made commitments. I mean, there's no doubt about it. I think it's an, it is a very reasonable place to land that American and the American military should honor its commitments. I just think we've made far too many commitments in the name of exportation of, a, of an empire. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. Yeah, I want to go back to this because this is such an interesting and important debate. I mean, it really is, um, Josh. And, and the question fundamentally is when and for what reasons should the United States use military force? It's a good question. I mean, in essence, that's the argument we're having. It's the debate. You know, and I certainly don't um, suggest that I know all the answers. I don't. I, I just have an opinion. I think my opinion is somewhat informed. I'm not a decorated general. I'm not a colonel. I've never served a day in the armed forces, but I'm an American citizen who has a right to express my opinion, my belief. And I, and I fundamentally uh, have changed over the years. I am far less of an interventionist today than I was 20 years ago. Um, I mean, I grew up in the cold war. A lot of my beliefs and opinions and, and dispositions were shaped by, you know, having drills in school. You know, where you put a book over your head. I mean, I just watched the movie Oppenheimer, uh, you know, post-Second World War. That's the world we grew up in. I watched something over the weekend about Bretton Woods. And, the you know, the global financial uh, system was basically ordered by America. I mean, we've had the right, the authority, because we were kind of the last man standing post-Second World War. Um, I mean, that, I'm a product of that. I mean, a lot of those influences have, have landed in my lap, and I've had to deal with them. Uh, being intellectually curious. I didn't say intellectual. I said being intellectually curious has forced me to explore why I believe some of these things I believe. And we're certainly entitled to have different opinions. But at the end of the day, I've kind of landed. When I, when I asked the question, when and for what reason or what reasons should America use military force? There, there, there's no definite answer there. I mean, I, I got to believe that situations are unique and different. Uh, obviously, presidential leadership is different. Who controls Congress is different. Um, the consensus of the American people is fundamentally different. But, but I think we've gotten ourselves to a point, and I wrote some things down during, during the break, where American exceptionalism or the belief in that, I mean, I, I don't buy American exceptionalism. I just don't. Uh, you know, I think America is... Uh, once again, linear graph, good, bad. We're, we're, we've been good for the world. But, but American exceptionalism, there's a certain entitlement that, that I sense when I say that. What, what, I mean, uh, what about Hungarian exceptionalism or, or Scandinavian exceptionalism? Um, well, and people are born and people die. So sure. America may have been exceptional at one point, but now all those people are gone. And, and the, the consensus changes. Right. The sentiment of the American people change. We're not static. I mean, we're very fluid. And, and our self-governance allows us to, 
throw the bums out whenever we choose. But but when you really, I mean, to, to me, and, and look, there's a lot of different places you can land here. And we had a couple of callers who said, look, man, we made a deal. Let's honor the deal. I think the deal was good. Personally, I don't like the deal. But but it doesn't mean that I'm right and you're wrong. I'm certainly not arguing that and, and would never go down um, that road. Now, you know, domestic policy, I think I understand a little bit better. I mean, I've lived in the business world as an American citizen all of my adult life. Domestic policy, taxation, and all these other things have been something I have fundamentally dealt with just consistently. Every second of every day I wake up and I feel like I'm at battle with American domestic policy, taxation and regulation and, you know, stipulation and uh, local and state and federal government. Wow. Um, But when you get down to the fundamental question of when and where and why should we use military force, I I have to hypothesize. I I have to conceptualize what I believe and what I don't believe. And fundamentally, I think that the, the most recent generation that has had so much impact on our foreign policy, I think they bought into American exceptionalism. And I think American exceptionalism met American imperialism. And I think American imperialism, you ready? Met corporate interest. Hence the military so. industrial complex. I mean, I'm not saying everybody that believes in intervention and everybody that believes our obligations to NATO are ironclad. I'm not saying those people are wrong. I'm certainly not suggesting that. But having spent uh, a good bit of time in government and even more time studying, reading about government, I think today's foreign policy in America today is driven largely by this, this concept of American exceptionalism, this concept of American imperialism, and corporate interest. I mean, it would amaze the casual observer of politics to know how much money is spent in persuading the public to believe X, Y, or Z. I mean, there is so much money in Washington, D.C. spent on persuading you to believe certain things make sense. And I guess I'm a little bit cynical of that, uh, naturally contrarian to that, but, but I just think there's an absolute warranted debate to be had about when, where, and how Americans should involve itself militarily or, in, in the case of Ukraine, $123 billion of foreign aid. I mean, th- those are very important questions, but we don't dwell on those things much, Josh, because very few of us are directly affected by that. Exactly. We're, we're all affected by domestic policy. Mm-hmm. I mean, we all have to swim in that pool whether we want to or not. We can kind of wash our hands a little bit of foreign policy and say, I'll let the experts figure that out. You know, I'll let the military, the political leadership, and, you know, at the end of the day, it doesn't have a lot of effect or impact on me. But but what if what if the deal with NATO, and, and we've got a deal with NATO, that if Russia were to invade Poland, you know, your child, your kid, your loved one could eventually be on a plane heading to Warsaw. Are you comfortable with that? I mean, that, that's always the question. It's not as simple as that. But it's got to be an ingredient in the stew of deciding what you are for and what you're not. And and I, I've just I mean this I don't oppose our involvement. I don't oppose our situation with NATO simply because an American kid could die in Warsaw defending Poland sovereignty. But that's a big part of it. I mean that that's where the rubber meets the road, so to speak. I mean political speak and you know um, hypothetical scenarios. And and I, and I would ask this. 
I think America, by and large, has been a force of good. Have we really made the world safer? Is the world a safer place today because of American imperialism and American exceptionalism? I think that's a very fair debate. I mean, some would argue the world's a more dangerous place because America has overreached or overstepped some of its considerations and boundaries. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. We have Angela calling from Florence. Angela, you're on the air. So, Ken, this is, you know, a conspiracy, but I I believe it wholeheartedly, and nobody's talking about it. Putin is, of course, not a good man, but he has spoken out against sexualization of our children over and over and over again. He does not like that. And everybody knows that Ukraine is the world hub for child trafficking. He has gone into Ukraine to destroy Ukraine because of the child trafficking. And our government, both sides of the aisle, definitely the Bidens, but both sides of the aisle, have their hands in the child trafficking, big time. And so that's why all of our money and all of our resources and everything else is going to Ukraine to help fight against it is to save the child trafficking industry, the multi-multi-billion dollar industry that they are destroying our children our children in order to get this crazy money and everything else. And that's, I mean, I truly believe that. And Putin's not going to stop until he wins that battle. That's Thank you, Angela. Opinion. Appreciate it. Well, I mean, and, and, and I'll say this, but I don't know that I, I know enough about that to speak with any degree of um, uh, not just certainty, but any degree of informed. Um, I mean, I don't think there's any doubt that, that America and other nations around the world have practiced or, or, or have trafficked in the practice of exploiting humanitarian crisis um, in the best interest of our military industrial complex. I mean, that, that's the persuasive part of this. That's how you convince the American people this is a worthy cause. I mean, if we, if we involved, if we all of a sudden sent a letter to every American saying, in the name of funding the military-industrial complex, we're going to, you know, uh, spend $123 billion in taxpayer dollars, I mean, the American people would say, no, of course not. We don't want to advance the military-industrial complex, but, but exploiting humanitarian crisis. I mean, that, that's been the most persuasive way. to, And I'm not saying it's all been null and void. I mean, of course there are humanitarian crises. But, but are there humanitarian crises in Sudan today? I mean, is Ukraine the epicenter of humanitarian crises? I mean, there are a lot of humanitarian crises in the world that we seem to not care much about. And, I mean, it, it's, it, I'm telling you guys, I mean, the interest of the military-industrial complex I think everything is subservient to that. Once again, I think American exceptionalism is, is a fair debate. I think the American empire is a fair debate. I don't think there's any debate how how influential the American military-industrial complex is and has become. Not only do they make money when we um, fund foreign governments or we intervene ourselves, they spend a lot of money in shaping public opinion. And, and, and public opinion is easily persuaded when people's, people believe there's a humanitarian need or a humanitarian crisis. That's a credit to the American people. 
I mean, that, you know, we're overall, I mean, we're good people. We don't like to hear that, you know, between, uh, I think, you know, Jay said 45,000. Um, General uh, McGregor says 400,000. You, you pick the number. So, so somewhere between 50 and 400,000 Ukrainians have been killed, you know, defending their homeland. That's a humanitarian crisis that Americans seem to be inclined to support and be interested in. Um, but the military industrial complex drives the train. I am more sure of that than I am almost anything. Josh is catching a call. I think we've got another call. Um, doing a little double duty. Dave's not here this morning. Josh, you ready? Yep. We okay. have Joel from Mullins on the line. Joel, you're on the air. Thank you, sir. Uh, Mr. Lord, I have two points I want to make. Uh, one of them has been pillared to death, and that is, uh, should we be in Ukraine or not? I think so, because the naked aggressiveness of Putin kind of scares me. And the second point that I've wondered about, and I don't think I've heard before, is if we don't rescue or continue the sovereignty or make sure that Ukraine stays independent, will we be feeding Chinese troops in the future? Uh, that's, there's a lot of grain in Ukraine, war in port, and uh, Russia and the United States and China do not make a successful triumphant comment, sir. Thank you. Appreciate that. Well, I mean, in all honesty, do we have a monopoly on Ukrainian grain? I mean, does Ukraine have a right to export? I mean, if China is willing to pay Ukraine more and Ukraine, let's say Ukraine is restored to some degree, a, a, a sovereign nation and Ukraine decides that it would rather sell its grain to China and Russia than, than America. I mean, does America get to dictate the terms and conditions of foreign trade? I mean, we, we've kind of become accustomed to. We get to make the rules, and everybody gets better played by these rules or else. And I think we're nearing the end of that. And I think there's very legitimate debates, guys. I'm trying to be very careful here and not say I know exactly what should happen in all these countries around the world. I have an opinion, but you're certainly entitled to have a different opinion than I. But, but are, we, are, are we in a position where Americans feel comfortable dictating to Ukraine who you're allowed to sell your grain to or not. I mean, how is that not imperialistic? Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Jeff from Florence. Jeff, you're on the air. Hey, good morning, guys. Hey, Jeff. Um, so Ukraine is a very large country. Would you agree? I would agree. Okay. Um, and just listening to your callers today, are you at all concerned that you might be falling for a campaign of propaganda? Oh no, not at all. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not at all concerned about that. I'm okay. concerned that there. I'm concerned that there are good decisions to make and bad decisions to make, and I'm hopeful we make more good decisions than bad. But but no, I, I don't think I'm. I mean, I, I don't think I would fall for a propaganda campaign. Okay. I would, I would accept you, the uncertainty of the situation, of course. Yeah. Do, do you think some of your callers are? They could. I can't speak okay. for the callers. Yeah, well, I mean, like, when you, when you start hearing about Ukraine as the hub of child trafficking and Vladimir Putin as the savior, um, who's trying to stop that and protect children, does that sound like reality to you? 
Well, I mean, I, I can't. I, I don't have a right to do that, Jeff. I mean, I, I can't. No, no, I'm just, I'm just asking, does it sound? But, but I'm not going to answer that question because people have a right to believe what they choose to believe. You do. I do. Everybody does. Right, right. So, um, uh, I mean, I'm just going to just just throw this out here. Do you believe that the Russians and their propaganda But machine, But I've told you before now, this is not an input. You don't get to. Okay. Well, I'll just say it. I, I mean, I I'd love to hear what you believe, think. People believe, know what I think. I, I do it for four hours. I want to hear what, what Jeff sure. believes about this situation. Sure. I believe that you're, you're all being duped. I believe that Russian misinformation and Russian propaganda has infiltrated your discourse and the beliefs of, of some of American citizens. And, and you don't believe the, the American government traffics in manipulation? Uh, look, uh, we can play what about ism. Does America. No, that, that's not about. That's countries? not what about ism. You're yeah, accusing people absolutely. of being duped by Russia. I could easily accuse you of being duped by your American government. Yeah. Do, do I think that the American government is involved in propaganda in foreign countries? Absolutely. Yes, I do. Okay, I'm not saying we don't do it also. But you don't believe but, the American government is involved in propaganda in its own country? But I believe that there's a messaging in the United States that exists from the government. Well, but yes, yeah, uh, the, the, the persuasive. I mean, but, but, but you would agree also that politics has a certain persuasiveness to it. I mean, if you're going to convince the American public this is the best thing to do, you've got to persuade them. You, you've, got to, you've got to sell it to them and convince them that this is the right thing to do. I, I mean, you, you make the argument that the modern Democrat Party has flipped its axis. And, and there's an argument that the, the Democrats are acting like neoconservatives. What do you think the Republican Party is acting? No, I still think there's a big neocon element in the Republican Party. I, I still think 25 to 30 percent of Republicans would be interventionist by nature. Okay. And, and, and again, linear graph, you keep using this. Um, you, you're going to believe Vladimir Putin more than uh, George Bush, more than Ronald Reagan? more than George Bush Sr., more than, like, the United States? Well, I mean, what, what you're asking is, do I trust the Russian government more than I trust the American government? No, but it doesn't mean I trust the American government. Well, you know who said they do trust Vladimir Putin more than his government? Well, I mean, you're gonna go, I, mean I, I would imagine you're going to say Donald Trump. Well, he did. I mean, you can't deny that. Let, let me ask you a question, Jeff. Hey, can, can you hang on? Because I don't want to get too far behind. Sure. Can you hang yes. on? Okay, let's take yes. a break. I want to yes. give Jeff because I got. I, I want to talk to you a little bit about. Well, just sit tight. I mean, it's not. This is not. I mean, this is kind of an honest debate between two guys who see the world differently. Take a break. Back in a few. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. There has been somewhat of a resituating of the parties in relation to foreign policy. Um, historically in my life, I can't speak before Vietnam, but since I become somewhat understanding of the world around me, the Republicans have been more hawkish about, you know, intervention in foreign policy. The, the Democrats have been a little more dovish, left in, less inclined to believe it's worth, you know, involving ourselves in some of these places. There's been somewhat of a shift in sentiment. Uh, and that would be America first, you know, c kind of a, um, 
let's let's take care of America, and then we'll worry about uh, the world around us. I'm not to the extreme there. I'm still thinking, and I've said it before, that America is important in helping guide certain situations around the world. I just feel terribly misled, terribly misled. Let's go to the phone. I think Jeff's still there. Jeff is still there. Okay. Floor's yours, my man. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, you, you do you believe Russia is fundamentally changed or in a better place than they were? Uh, like, and I'm not going to ask you questions. Clearly, you I, mean, I, don't, I don't mind doing that. I mean, I don't yeah. mind back and forth, yeah, but I just I mean, can't. I can't let you. I'm on. The, I'm not yeah, on the witness I mean, stand. You get that? No, no. I, I, I get that. But I mean, you have to start to to wonder what kind of influence you might be under are you under a campaign are you are you hearing like it you can go back you can find the photos from 2015 where you've got michael flynn jill stein you can go and look at the 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 republicans uh that are are so hawkish against nato ron johnson um lindsey grant you can you can find the list of people visiting russia before the 2016 election and look at their positions and you know it's it's easy to to see an influence campaign that is affecting your your movement that nobody's going to sit here and say do you believe donald trump was rough on russia do you believe is it donald trump's job to be rough on russia absolutely that is our enemy and i don't care what you think he's rescuing babies in ukraine he's he's killing babies in ukraine if you look into vladimir putin's heart and eyes you're gonna see evil and and the world breaks down you you know i I love to hear democrats are evil because they want to they want to kill babies with abortion could could i say something jeff this is josh by the way absolutely um i actually agree with you i think the point the other caller made about Putin going to Ukraine solely to stop human trafficking, I think that's ridiculous. That that might be a contributing factor, but I don't think it is. I think it largely has stuff to do with, you know, NATO and the and you know, bordering the seas. But if I could you ask you, do you think it's a land grab, Josh? Like you don't you don't think it's an expansionism? Not really. I mean, it, again, it okay. could be, but if I could ask cuz you're you're saying this stuff about how if you look into Putin's eyes, you'll see evil. Do you think that, like, if you had to ask yourself which side has been more influenced by either uh, anti or pro-Russian propaganda, who who do you think has been more influenced and in which way? Oh, in the U.S., sides, Democrats or Republicans? Yes. Do you think people have been more okay. influenced against Russia or for Russia in America? There's no— the, there was a goodwill that Russia had after the after Reagan broke them and they tore down that wall and they they released, you know, they 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 released Europe in the grip they had. OK, there was a goodwill towards them. They were headed on the right path. You would you be talking and about then, the Gorbachev era? I, I'm talking about Gorbachev. I'm talking about Yellen. OK, you know, okay. look, look at them. The investment that the U.S. companies made, we were trying to pull them up. And what happened was, you know, the deep state, that's what Vladimir Putin is. He is a KGB agent. The deep state got them. And he got them and suspended elections. He was president. 
Now he's prime minister. He's got a president. Do, do you believe that's anything but a dictatorship? No, I'm, but but I'm not a Putin sympathizer. See, see, I'm, I'm, I'm nowhere I near there. I, I think Vladimir Putin's a bad guy. But but I don't know that it's our job to address every bad guy living living or, or, or leading a nation all around the world. There are a lot of bad guys leading the nations around the world. You're I just right. don't. I just don't think it's our job to decide who gets to lead Russia, who gets to lead Ukraine, who gets to lead uh, so some of the other countries. I just, I just never. To me, that's that's imperialistic. I mean, that that's the American Empire on full display. Um, what would you're, you? You're either going to fight. Or, or you're, or you're not. Like you can't, you can't walk away from a fight. Sometimes. Well, let me ask you this, Jeff. I'd be interested in your opinion here, and, and I don't want to turn it into to the Jeff show, but I, I want to. It, let, let's say that that Canada and Mexico bought into this anti-American sentiment and partnered with Russia and created some sort of, uh, you know, an international conglomerate, some sort of transnational organization. What would America's response be if all of a sudden Canada and Mexico? were far more friendly with Russia than they were with us. It'd be real easy. We'd number one, we'd shut them off economically, and it would crush your economy. So, so, no but, doubt about but, it. But, but we would happen. look after the our own interest. Thing, right. The second thing that we would do is we would invoke our Monroe Doctrine, and we wouldn't allow Russia to have bases in the in in the Western Hemisphere. So the Monroe Doctrine applies to Russia, but not America. No, it, it, it absolutely. Hey, I, I I don't make the rules, but I like them. Well, I mean, I, I understand, I'm, I'm but, but 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 we're we're America ending. Uh, let, let me ask you this philosophically, and I got to get out of here. Let somebody else get on the air. Sure. Do you believe we're nearing the end of the American century? No. Okay. That's 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 the fundamental difference. That, that is, you but guys, I'll agree with that. That that is where you and I. That that is the first fork in the road. I believe yeah. we're nearing the end of the American century. You don't. And I certainly respect yeah. that, but but if we if we diverge there, it's going to be real hard to say grace over some of these other major issues. Let let me put it to you this way: like our biggest global threat economically is China, and what's happening right now in China. Do you think your Do you think your listeners know what's happening in China right now? Well, I mean, I, I don't think anybody really knows what's happening in China. They're 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 failing. Well, I mean, that could they're, be their economy is crushing, and we're, and ours and, isn't. And, no, yeah, this is this is the funny thing. What did Donald Trump say was going to happen to the stock market if Joe Biden got elected? But 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 Jeff, we're propping the market up. I mean, we're we're, we're, we're uh, the permanent course. expansion we're of money supply. But but who was the guy up there taking credit for all of that? So so you that believe was, that the American economy is in a better place than the Chinese economy? One hundred percent. I'd say we just Take fundamentally disagree. I think Take I think both are in. Take a look. Well, I mean, I, Take a look. Okay. Thank you, Jeff. Appreciate it. Always. Yep. I mean, always an interesting uh, back and forth. But but Jeff's right. I mean, the fundamental disagreement we have is I think that we've made unbelievably careless decisions in regards to our prosperity and prominence, and we are a nation in decline. Jeff doesn't buy that. I, I don't know how you argue that we're not a nation decline when you look at our balance sheet, when you look at some of the value propositions that we have. I mean, we're, we're a nation now. Um, I mean, I'll give you a reason. I mean, let's go culture for a second. We just nominated a, a woman to the Supreme Court who, under uh, the advise and consent process, said, I can't answer what a woman is because I'm not a biologist. I mean, do we not believe there are consequences to that? 
I mean, forget the bottom line. Forget $33 trillion in federal debt. Forget uh, our inability to service that debt probably within the next decade or so. Forget the expanding of government paid for health care. Forget redistributionism and collectivism. Uh, it, it's just hard for me to argue. Now, now, now I believe in certain principles. I, I believe certain things are essential to be um, successful in the long run. And I think we have breached those, fundamentally breached. I'm not talking about nipped around the edges. And and I could go back to six or eight or nine or ten things in our, in our country's history that I think were defining moments. I think Nixon in 71 to protect the dollar by, by you know, um, I mean, you and I would know it as um, taking us off the gold standard is how we would argue. That would be, what, 29, 29 50 years ago-ish, a little better than 50 years ago when we, 52 years ago, when we decided to do that, and I think it's led to rampant inflation. But, but, but I, I just think fundamentally we, we are a superpower in decline. I think there's one nation on the ascent, China. I think there's one nation in decline, Russia. And I think my kids will grow up in a world that does not consist of a sole superpower, but rather a geopolitical adversary unlike any we've ever seen. That's my point. That, that's my, I've read about it. I've tried to understand it. Domestic foreign policy, you know, is, is, is the former Soviet Union a thing of the past? Probably not as long as Putin as a former KGB member is there because there will always be a sense of nostalgia about putting the band back together. And we've got to be aware of that. But, of course, we've got to be aware of that. But the preeminent geopolitical adversary America has today is China. And but I'll give you an example. Vivek Ramaswamy answered a question the other day. But if we're not a nation in decline... Why are we deeply concerned about Russia, excuse me, China, dealing with Taiwan, invading Taiwan? Because they make semiconductors. I mean, if we're the largest economy in the world, the most powerful economy in the world, the most independent economy in the world, our, our interest in Taiwan is not a 1949 territorial dispute, but rather they produce nearly all the semiconductors that we consume. I mean, that, that's a nation in decline. I mean, when, when we didn't have antibiotics, during the pandemic, you know, China made all the antibiotics. How are we, we have decided to, to, to make other countries providers of things that we essentially need in, in the name of globalism. And I think globalism has weakened our status in the world. I think globalism has impaired our ability to balance foreign policy, domestic issues, uh, the body politic addressing, you know, things that are in the American people's best interest. So, so, yeah, I mean, you know, fundamentally, I think we are a nation. I don't, I'm not saying we're in precipitous decline, and I'm not saying we're in free fall. I mean, I, I, Ernest Hemingway or someone said, how do things fail gradually, then suddenly? I mean, that, that scares me. That makes me very nervous because I think we're gradually declining, but I do believe there will be a moment probably in my lifetime where certain things suddenly happen and, and convince others that, yeah, I mean, we, we abuse the privilege of being the preeminent superpower in the world. We didn't behave. We didn't act accordingly. We were irresponsible. Uh, we got fat and happy. I mean, there, there are a lot of ways to explain or describe, but, but, and there are those who disagree with me. I mean, there, there are those who say, no, look at our fundamentals. Look at what we believe in. We're progressing. Uh, we're, we're, we're offering mankind more opportunity. I, I just, I'm not in that camp. I am in the camp that we have made a series of decisions that will eventually lead to our dramatic demise. When that happens, I don't have a clue. Is it, you know, day after tomorrow? No. Is it year after next? No. But in the eventual future, the American century will end. 
And I'm not saying we'll be a thing of, 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 of you know, a shadow of our, uh, we will be a shadow of our former self. It doesn't mean we still don't matter. We're not consequential. I mean, France got us, you know, France and England and Italy and Greece. I mean, you know, see, people seem to be happy working three days a week, <laughs> drinking beer, you know, um, <laughs> having, having a big time. 843-661-0937. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. Someone sent me a text a second ago mentioning, remember the, um, the interaction that Barack Obama had, uh, former President Obama had with Dmitry Medvedev of Russia, the former president of Russia, uh, when he told Medvedev that I'll have more flexibility. And Medvedev said, I'll tell Vlad when I get back to Russia. But it was something about missile systems in Europe. And, um, and remember when Barack Obama, former president Barack Obama, said to Mitt Romney, the 80s want their foreign policy back. When Romney talked about how, you know, this, the, um, the geopolitical adversary of the moment was Russia. And Obama kind of moved past that. And just a couple of, it's a complicated world. It's an extremely complicated world. And, and we, we tend to just kind of, um, we try to simplify it. We really and truly do. I think you asked a very interesting question, Josh. Do you believe more Americans have been tricked into believing Russia's bad or Russia's good? Because historically, I grew up believing Russia's bad. And, and now there are some in this kind of um, the America First movement saying, well, I'm not sure Russia's that bad. I think there's an inclination Americans have today to question its own government. And I think historically, when asked to consider whether the American government's telling you the truth or the Russian government, it was a no-brainer. I mean, it was just like, you know, give me my American flag. I want to put it in my front yard. And I think now a lot of Americans have reached that cynical, critical mass where we're like, well, I mean, I certainly don't trust the Russian government but do I really believe what the American government is telling me? And that's the kind of a newfound phenomenon. I think we've always been skeptical of government, but we never believe the government intentionally over and over and over and over lied, just misled intentionally uh, with, with, with malice in their heart. And I think a lot of Americans buy that now. So when you say, do you trust the Russians more than you do uh, the Americans? Well, I mean, I trust my fellow Americans far more than I do uh, the Russian population, I don't know Russians. I mean, I, I got to believe that they're probably good people in Russia and bad people in Russia. They're probably, you know, conservatives in Russia and liberals in, in Russia. I would accept it's a totalitarian regime. I would accept it's run by a dictator. It's a socialist empire, so to speak. It's kind of, um, it's kind of interesting to me, the left having to kind of scramble dealing with a, a socialist empire. You know, when 58% of Democrat voters believe that socialism is a better economic theory to implement than, than capitalism, at the same time, they, they've kind of got to honor this, this, this newfound hawkishness they have about the world around us. I mean, it, it's interesting times in America today, and it's complicated, and it can't be fixed in a bumper sticker or a soundbite. Um, th- there are a lot of different variations of opinions, and people are certainly entitled to hold um, those opinions and express those opinions, and we'll never ever stop that. I mean, I am less hawkish, less interventionist, more suspicious than I've ever been about American foreign policy. I'm on the record. I've been very consistent in that. Uh, Trump didn't introduce me to that. I'd I'd long believed um, that you know the American leadership was being fundamentally dishonest about some of what is happening around the world, and are we being told the truth about? 
um, Afghanistan? Are we being told the truth about Iraq and Iran? Are we being told the truth about Syria? Are we being told the truth about, about Russia and China? I mean, I would advise anybody listening to my voice, blind faith in your leaders will lead to ruination. I can assure you of that. I mean, I understand patriotism. I understand loyalty to a country and a cause. And I am a proud American. I'm unapologetically a proud American. But I'm damn sure not blind loyal to my political leadership at the federal level. I mean, I, I, you know, count me out on that. And when my government says things out of Washington about Russia, I'm skeptical whether they're telling me the truth or not. When they say things about China, I'm skeptical whether they're telling me. I wish I were not. I mean, I wish I was committed to believing uh, what, what the, uh, the duly elected officials and career bureaucrats in Washington were suggesting to be reality, but I don't. I just simply don't buy what they're selling right now uh, because I've been habitually misled over and over and over again. Why must Russia be our enemy? You know, and, it, and you know, to Jeff's point, he's talking about Republicans going and visiting Russia. It could be for mischievous ends, but it also could just be diplomacy. Well, I mean, and what's is, wrong with that? Is diplomacy a better answer than 400,000 dead kids? I mean, I, I, mean accept, I accept war as inevitable at times. I do. I mean, I understand sure. that. I mean, there, there, are, there are, are certain situations you can't find a, a diplomatic resolve, and, and war is inevitable. I get that. I'm not a pacifist, but, 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 you know, should American interests be exposed? Back in a minute. I do want to say before we get to our next guest, I talked to Robert yesterday, Robert Cahaley of Trafalgar, is going to try to hook up with us tomorrow morning. He's traveling today, trying to get to Milwaukee. But Robert will offer somewhat of a, uh, not just a preview of the debate, uh, he would be more inclined to talk about analytics and statistics and polling and whatnot about where the race is as we head into the first uh, Republican primary presidential debate. Former special assistant to President Trump, America First Policy Institute Chief Communications Director Mark Lauder is with us this morning. Mr. Lauder, good morning. How are you? Good morning. How are you? So in debates, candidates wait for a breakout moment. I guess the biggest news is Trump not being there. But outside of that, who do you think most likely will have that breakout moment? Well, it's just a question of, of whether anybody can actually truly break out. I mean, when Donald Trump is up 41 points in the real clear politics average, uh, you know, it seems like it's pretty much a done deal by this point. Uh, you know, but look, a lot. I think Governor DeSantis is going to get a lot of incoming uh, from the other candidates. I think he's desperately trying to hold on to second place because he has been falling like a rock since he announced. Vivek Ramaswamy is surging, but like not likely to get, uh, get the nomination. So the question is, can anyone else have that moment? And even then, what does that moment look like? Because they're not going to disagree on policy. They're all going to stand up there and basically say, bring back the Trump policies because they worked. We had low gas prices, low inflation, secured southern border. So what are you what are you trying to convince people, whether they want Donald Trump the real thing or Donald Trump on decaf? But you would agree that the mainstream media narrative Thursday morning will more likely than not be Chris Christie and him, you know, going after Trump to basically marginalize or disparage his candidacy. Do you expect anybody to address Christie criticizing the front runner? No, I think they're all hoping that Christie will do the dirty work that they don't want to have to do. Because uh, Chris Christie is not going to be the nominee. There's no chance that you know he's going to get that nomination. So if they're hoping that he is going to be the, the puncher or the prosecutor, 
that finally tries to cut into Donald Trump's lead, yet they don't have to be the ones to do it. Uh, I don't think it's going to work, and it's going to be very interesting to see how the American people react to a guy who's basically attacking a candidate who's not even there to defend himself. Let me ask you a question. You mentioned DeSantis a second ago. DeSantis is underachieved as far as I'm concerned, but the one candidate that is overachieved and I find very interesting and refreshing is Vivek Ramaswamy. From your perspective, why has DeSantis underperformed and Ramaswamy overperformed? Well, I think the one thing, and I think this is where uh, Ron DeSantis has misread the electorate and where Vivek has has read it well. Vivek is basically running Donald Trump's 16 campaign, not politician, successful businessman, not afraid to say what what he thinks, not poll tested, not polished professional politician, which is what you have with almost all of these other candidates. And people rejected that in 2016. They could have had Jeb Bush in 2016. They could have had Tim Cruz or Marco Rubio or many other people in 2016. They wanted the fighter. They wanted the business guy. They were tired of those poll-tested and polished politicians. Vivek taps into that. No one else has been able to do it because, well, they're all poll-tested, polished politicians. I believe that Trump's making the right decision. I got to think you do as well, being in such a dominant position but how would you address, I mean, when asked, and I'm talking about the follow-up the next week or two or three, what do you think Trump will say about not being at the debate, if anything at all? Well, I think he's going to say what he's basically said is that I'm already way up in the polls, uh, and he should be turning his focus to Joe Biden. Uh, stop worrying about these other candidates who are your 41 points down uh, and have really very little chance of getting the nomination. Turn your attention to the one opponent who matters. That's Joe Biden. Last question. I want to get your take on this. We mentioned a second ago that Robert Haley of Trafalgar will be with us tomorrow. I'm not an analytics guy. I mean, I'm kind of instinctive and gut-driven as a former candidate and office holder here in South Carolina. But when I hear the pervasive narrative of the mainstream media that Donald Trump is unelectable, he's too extreme, too polarizing, too vindictive, too uh, divisive, but but I, I start doing the math. And it appears to me he's the only candidate that could win in a November 24, 24 matchup against against the Democrats. What say you to that? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I agree with you in completely. And here's the one fundamental difference that, that all the mainstream media are getting wrong. Joe Biden didn't have a record in 2020. I was on that campaign as director of strategic communications. Didn't have a record that we could run against. So he could hide in his basement, say, I've got a long history of working across party aisles, and I'm going to end the pandemic and get away with it. And I'm not Donald Trump. Well, he has a record in 2024, and people don't like it, whether it's gas prices, grocery prices, the border, parents being told they have no right to know what's going on with their kids in schools, crime out of control, a war in Ukraine. You name it. There's nothing that Joe Biden hasn't touched that he hasn't broken, and we can run on that against his policies and then contrast it back with the Trump policies that did work. And even if you didn't like the way Donald Trump tweeted or talked about people or whatever – you liked the outcome of the policies. I mean, I've seen the meme that says, I'd take a mean tweet for $2 gas, and I think people truly believe it. Mark, is there any chance? I mean, I'm a Trump supporter, unapologetically a Trump supporter. I got a lot of friends of mine that are looking for a reason to be supportive of Trump, but they are concerned, to your point about the tweets and some of the um, uh, some of the unnecessary banner. Is there any reason to believe 24 will be any different than 16 and 20? Um, I think to a certain extent. I mean, I think obviously this time he does have an opponent to run against with a record. And and in one case, that's a lot easier to do. 
uh, rather than a hypothetical president of Joe Biden or even a hypothetical president of Hillary Clinton. He can run against Joe Biden's record. And so that makes it a much different race. And I think when you contrast those policies to what he was able to accomplish, I think people are generally going to like them. Now, he's still going to be the fighter. But if he you know, we've already seen to a certain extent, you know, that he's changed a little bit of how he is operating without giving up that fighting spirit and that champion spirit. So, I mean, I think we're going into it in a very good position, very good in the key states. And uh, I think right now we just have to keep pushing through. Well explained. Mark, thank you for your time. Have a great day, sir. Thank you. You too. You know what? And I want to go back to this. I mean, we touched on it this morning, and I know we got a call, and we'll get there in two seconds. But I want to go back to this. The, the pervasive narrative in the mainstream right now, it's kind of a drumbeat, that, um, that Trump can't win. I mean, he dominates the Republican primary, but he can't win in November. You better find somebody a little more even-keeled and mild-mannered. Now, now, once again, and I told Josh this morning, I understand those who are being paid to say this. I mean, that's conservative ink. I mean, that's the consultant class. That, that's the think tanks. That's, you know, those that appear as pundits on, on some of the mainstream media. Chris Christie, Joe Scarborough. Um, I mean, there, there are a myriad of others. I mean, there are a multitude of people who are getting paid handsomely to try and convince Republican voters that Donald Trump can't win in November of 2024. Math is a stubborn thing. And I put something on Facebook yesterday kind of celebrating and paying respect to Yogi Berra. Yogi Berra said 90% of baseball is mental. The other half is physical. Well, Yogi was a great catcher. Probably would have been a better politician uh, using that kind of math. So let's do the math real quick. And and this is why it matters to me. McCain in 08 got 59,948, 323 votes. Romney in 12 got 60 million I'm sorry, I said 59,000, 60,933,504. Both lost to Barack Obama. Their vote total was within a million one another, about, you know, 60 million and then about 61 million. Trump got about 63 million in 16, so he increased the, the 12 number of Romney by 2 million, and in 20, he got nearly 75 million votes, 74,223,975. So Trump brought a lot of people to the dance that normally don't vote in or for a Republican candidate. When you ask the Trump voter, and here's the interesting number to remember, when you ask the Trump voter whether they'll support the nominee if it's not Donald Trump, only 57% say yes. Now, you know, Robert believes that's low. Robert believes it's somewhere around 65%. He thinks Trump he thinks 35% of GOP voters are Trump voters and not married ideologically to the conservative cause or, or Republicans in general. I would vote for a write-in candidate. It's about 28%. I would um, be voting for a third-party nominee, 6.8%. I would consider voting for a Democrat nominee, only about 6.1%. I would not vote at all, 4.8%. So if you apply... The, the analytics of math, I mean, two plus two equals four. Don't matter if it's a D or an R. Trump's the only guy that can win. He's the only guy that has a chance to win. There's 11 to 14% never Trumpers. There's 30 to 35 Trumpers. Last I checked, 30 is more than 11. 35 is more than 14. There's not enough soccer moms. There's not enough white-educated college voters 
to make up for the exodus of working-class voters who will just take their ball and go home. It doesn't right. matter whether Josh likes it. It doesn't matter if I like it. It doesn't matter if, if, if you like it or not. I mean, that's just where we are. I mean, practically speaking, that's where we are today. And if you, if you look at that math and you hear the pervasive narrative, it's, just, it's inconsistent with truth. The, the, the only narrative that could be true is Trump is the only person that could win in November of 2020. I'm not saying he is, but, but if you apply the standard of math and you believe some of this data, it, it's pretty interesting that instead of the pervasive narrative being Trump can't win because he's too divisive, Trump is the only Republican that can win despite him being as divisive as he is. Let's go to the phone. David calling from the PD. David, you're on the air. Yeah, Ken is. You ever get the one that said if you come to the fork in the road, take it? I I don't know. He's got a lot of good ones. I was thinking, I was listening to Donna Brazil. I guess it's about two weeks ago, and she was talking about how Al Gore, after that 2000 recount election, he conceded he did not storm the Capitol, and she admitted that he said, "Let's go back to the business." the business of government. And I said to myself, wow, that's a curious mindset. So what did he do? He became the pioneer in this green energy climate uh, industry, whatever you want to call that. And guess who joined him? John Kerry. So look who dominates our energy policy. And there's a forced energy policy where you're going to lower domestic oil production. I think that's one of the big factors in our inflation. Not only that, though, it's allowed Russia to be able to sell oil at a much higher price. So they got money they wouldn't have maybe three years ago. And you look at Ukraine, that was first Trump impeachment. That was the subject of that. And I think, to me, Ukraine is known for corruption, but it's not anymore. Uh, It's seen as the good guy. But I'm kind of curious about some of these folks that call in the mindset on our economy. When you're $31 trillion in debt and your, your debt is equal to the GDP, I don't know who is that benefiting. I guess government works, I'm not quite sure. And we're a trillion dollars in consumer debt. And you think about the higher inflation rate and the higher interest rate, the average person's taking it on a chance. So they need to have, Trump needs to get him a little calculator online to see where we were at maybe three years ago. And I'll leave you at that. Rich uh, men north of Richmond, uh, that's not only D.C. and New York and Boston, but Davos too. So you have a good day. Thank you, David. Appreciate it. You know, we go back to Jeff's conversation about the fork in the road. The first fork in the road is American decline or not. I mean, I take one lane. Jeff agreed. He takes the other. I won't put words in his mouth, but he said he doesn't think America's in decline. So, so if you believe America's in decline, fundamentally, why? I mean, why are we in decline? Is it the dead? Is it the a Supreme Court justice can't tell you what a woman is? Well, I mean, a lot of this, those things contribute, but I look back at history, and and history says that an empire crumbles when so few control so much of the wealth in a nation. Now, I sound kind of like a liberal here, right? I, I sound like somebody who would ascribe to the notions of redistributionism and, um, and, and socialism and um, collectivism at a minimal. It doesn't matter what I ascribe to. It doesn't matter what I believe. History clearly says that when an empire reaches a certain place, where fewer and fewer control more and more of that nation's wealth, there are bad days that lie ahead. There is a precipitous decline. There is the beginning of the end of that empire. And when you look at some of the financial realities of America 
today. It it reminds me a lot of some of the former empires, uh, some of the, some of the Gilded Ages and uh, aristocratic France and whatnot. But but let, let's you know when you, I mean I'll give an example. So the what I call relative wage that is wage divided by GDP per capita. We've had about forty five years consistent decline. We've had an increase in people worth more than $25 million. We've had a tremendous increase in the number of billionaires in America, and we've had a declining in relative wage of the American worker. The 64% of Americans who don't have a college degree, I mean, the, the, the relative wage, I mean, real wage shrank every year over the last 40. You can't have that financial model and sustain. You just can't. Here come the pitchforks. I mean, people get unbelievably upset, bothered, politically motivated, um, consumed by by some of those realities. So, I mean, it, when I say America's in decline, of course I'm concerned about the, the 30 tri- – I mean, that, that's an unfathomable number. I mean, you can't comprehend it. I can't comprehend it. Jeff can't com- – nobody can comprehend 30 30- – Two trillion dollars in federal debt. What about two trillion this year? Remember, we raised the debt ceiling, but we didn't put a kind of a stop on it. And now, I mean, you've given the Biden administration permission to spend whatever. I mean, it doesn't matter. And we're at about two trillion dollars this year. I mean, this will be the first time in human history we've spent two trillion dollars we didn't have. But we're going to do that. And some will argue that's not a nation in decline. It, it, it boggles my mind, and maybe it's the fact that I spent my entire life in business where two and two always equaled four, and there had to be some sharing of the benefit of a productive and thriving and prosperous business, and when, when you know, the, the permanent expansion of, of uh, money supply, Josh has heard me say that until I'm blue in the face, that that's been a large contributor to the, the relative wage, the lack of growth in relative wage, the lack of growth in real wage. So, so when I look at American decline, I mean, there are a lot of places I can look be deeply concerned by. But, but history says, there's your trouble. History says, here come the pitchforks. I mean, sooner or later, the American people will uprise. And out of that comes a quasi-revolution. And out of that comes a resistance by those who are in charge. Those who do believe they're entitled to, to you know, being in control of the most lucrative economy in the history of mankind. What did David just say? The business of government. Right. I mean, Gordon knew exactly what he was saying when he said that, the business of government. Um, I mean, if, if, cli- if man-made climate change is a con and a fraud, and I think it is, I mean, I think it's a, a concoction. I mean, it, you know, climate change, okay, let's have a discussion. Man-made climate change, whoa. Man-made climate change with absolute certainty that we know how much we're causing and we know exactly what to do to stop causing it, that's a con. I mean, that's a, that's a fraud. But, you know, a lot of elitists have got unbelievably wealthy and selling that con fraud snake oil to the American public. And, you know, a, a high percentage of Americans buy into that. I mean, I've got very um, sound mind, sound-minded friends of mine who buy into that. The, the ocean is rising. Okay, I'll agree with that. I mean, I've said it on the air. I think the ocean is rising. Why? Well, let's go there. I mean, if we've established... If, if, if this person and, and yours truly have agreed the ocean's rising, what, what's the next question? Why? I mean, I, I tend to believe it's cyclical. 
s- some of my friends believe that it's man-induced, that, that man is the reason, the, the carbon we're emitting as the result of the industrialized world that we've created and how much power, uh, you know, it takes to, you know, how, much, how much power must be generated to provide the necessary energy to do all these cool things around the world. And that's being uber-abusive to the, to the client. Anyway, uh, we got to take a break. Got a 9.30 guest from Fox News back in just a few moments. You know, we joke a lot around, we joke around a lot about participation trophies. Everybody gets a trophy if you participate. Doesn't matter if you struck out four times in the game. You tried real hard, so you get a trophy for that. I've never seen political candidates get as creative as they did trying to qualify for the debate. You know, if you send me a dollar, I'll send you a $20 gift card. That's that's pretty interesting. But anyway, everybody wanted to be on the stage. Um, Tomorrow night, Fox News will cover um, the debate. Fox News Radio's Jeff Manasso is in Chicago. Jeff, good morning. How are you, sir? I'm doing well, thank you. Yeah, so eight Republican candidates have qualified to make the debate stage in Milwaukee tomorrow night for the first Republican presidential primary debate. Uh, and thanks to those $20 gift cards for the $1 donations, North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum is in. Uh, former Governor Chris Christie is in. Governor Ron DeSantis, former Ambassador Nikki Haley, former Governor, Governor Asa Hutchinson, uh, former VP Mike Pence, Vivek Ramaswamy, and Senator Tim Scott. And while former President Donald Trump won't be there, He's certainly going to be a topic of conversation tomorrow night, as right now. The nomination is his to lose. Jeff, from that perspective, I mean, I've been in debates. You always look for that breakout moment. Um, I don't know if I'm asking you who do you suspect may have that breakout moment, but is there is there anybody that has more to gain or lose as a result of Trump not being there and then them getting a night or a day in the uh, in the bright lights? Well, I mean, look, at this point, they're all fighting for second place right now. Uh, we know that uh, Ron DeSantis and Vivek Ramaswamy, they're, they're leading the contenders, the, the other six contenders that will be on that stage. So, you know, what we'll be looking for is how will these candidates perform? You know, who will they go after? Uh, and, and, you know, how will the crowd react? That's something we're going to have to wait and see. I mean, these candidates, they're looking, as you mentioned, through the, for, for those those punch-through moments on stage, uh, though, all again, all fighting for, 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 for what Donald Trump says, for scraps. Uh, we'll see. I mean, look, if, if I'm one of those campaigns, I'm trying to reach out to voters who are on the fence, uh, even to voters who are locked in and loyal to former President Trump, as there's a lot of time ahead of the election. Uh, and a lot going on for the former president to where if it's ultimately not him, I'm going to want these voters to have a second choice. Um, but equally, the debate tomorrow night is about Wisconsin. It's about North Carolina. It's about Iowa. It's about every state in the, in the nation uh, and absolutely about Joe Biden, our grocery bills, our gas prices, illegal immigration and more. And it will be about the man or, or woman who, who can beat Joe Biden in, in 2024. So if I'm on the debate stage, I'm, I'm using Wisconsin-specific issues, uh, local issues, kitchen table issues, because, you know, states like Wisconsin and the reflective of, of the pain that's going on economically across uh, the U.S. And uh, the RNC chair for Wisconsin said, look, this, so long as the conversation is an adult conversation, 
that focuses on issues that are relevant to voters, that that's how the party wins tomorrow night as a whole. That's very well explained. Jeff, thank you for your time. Have a great day. You too. Josh, I got a, I got a question for you. All right. So of all the candidates on the stage, who are you most interested in? Uh, Vivek. Okay. That surprises me. No, I'm saying that sarcastically. <laughs> of course, you're a younger guy. Uh, he has appeal to younger people. Um, okay. Let's if take- you had asked me who is most surprising to me that they're there in the first place, other than Doug Burgum, I would say Chris Christie. Cause to me, he, sh- he, he just screams like the old Republican party that people have essentially rejected. Okay. Let's do this. And on one extreme, you've got Pence and, and Christie. You would agree to that? Yes. I mean, they're they're the uh, the poll-tested, orchestrated, check-of-the-box politician. Yes. In one extreme, you've got Vivek Ramaswamy. Who is next to Vivek Ramaswamy? Who is the um who is the person outside of Ramaswamy and Trump, I mean, obviously, that doesn't fit the bill as a historic candidate, traditional candidate? Check in the box candidate. Um, that's a good question. I would really, I think he's the only one, but if I had to come up with a close with, with a second, it would be a distant either DeSantis or uh, Tim Scott. Okay. Why has DeSantis failed there? Why has DeSantis failed to convince you and many, many other Americans that he is somewhat like Ramaswamy and Trump? He is not a check-in-the-box candidate. He's not a, you know, c- kind of an orchestrated, uh, you know, poll-tested, what did the think tank say about this or that or the other. I mean, you would agree that's kind of where he made his name. Right. Right? I mean, he, he you know, he was trump light. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. what he was known as, uh, as governor of Florida. But, hey, I mean, th- this guy's tough. I mean, this guy takes on Disney. He takes on teachers' unions. I mean, he doesn't play this, you know, and all of a sudden he gets in the race and, you know, just can't find his spot. I mean, it's just, I, I said earlier, he tried to thread a needle that is almost impossible to thread. Um, he doesn't have a lot of baggage. I mean, he really doesn't. He, he, you know, when you look at America first as kind of a confrontational political element, DeSantis would fit the bill. Not, not scared of controversy, not scared of confrontation, um, you know, takes on liberal organizations in aggressive fashion. Why do you think he's failed to resonate with Republican primary voters? You know, I, it, it's a complex question, but I think just to simplify it, he's not as charismatic. He's not as likable. I've seen clips of him. Fans come up to him and they're like, I love you. And he's like, okay. He, he kind of stumbled. That, that is probably the most obvious thing. I think a part of it is also he was set up to be uh, – he was kind of told, hey, you're you're going to be the new Trump. So he just kind of laid back, and then someone like Vivek came in and stole his thunder. And now he's scrambling to get it back, but that's really hard to do. But you nailed it. What is Vivek? I mean, he may be a little bit out there, but he's charismatic. Yep. He grabs your attention. He says things that you go, wow, did he really say that? That's where our electorate is. I don't know about the Democrats because I don't keep up with Democrat primaries. And, you know, I mean, I I just I'm a former Republican office holder. I think I have a a pretty decent understanding of the Republican orbit. What works, what doesn't work, what to be careful with, what I'd really pay close attention to. 
And and what Ramaswamy has done is engage the voters in controversial fashion. Normally, you don't do that. Today, and and I think someone said that earlier. I think the um the Trump surrogate said that earlier about some of these guys just can't be convinced it's that different today. I mean, if if you run for office as Mike Pence has all of his life, and all of a sudden that model is obsolete, it's all you know. Right. It's all you've ever done, and you've been successful. I mean, you were second highest elected official in all the world. The vice president of the United States, Mike Pence. How did he get there? Following the book. Doing what the consultant said do. Poll-tested messaging. And, you know, don't say these controversial things. You'll offend independent voters. And I just don't think those guys understand. I don't think Chris Christie has an honest idea how out of touch he sounds when he says these things. I mean, I understand what he's doing. He's the heavy, literally and figuratively. I mean, he's the heavy (laughs) going after Trump. You know, I get that. Somebody in the race has to do that. That's his job. Um, And and I get he'll probably do that fairly well. I mean, remember we went after Rubio in 20 or in 16. That would have been in 16 when, you know, the media says he devastated Marco Rubio by, you know, Rubio would have been considered a, a legitimate challenger to Trump. Um, really to Jeb Bush at the time more than anything. And Trump comes out of, out of nowhere and garners all that, um, all that momentum. But, but, but I, I think you nailed it. Some of these guys can't be convinced that the electorate is that different. Right. They're, they're that willing to hear somebody say things that historically you just can't get away with. Um, Ramaswamy's the only candidate that I've heard sound a little bit like Trump and get away with it. Everybody else that tries to emulate some of what Trump has done sounds silly. They look silly. Mm-hmm. They look disingenuous. It looks phony. Ramaswamy says really and truly, Josh, more provocative and controversial things than Trump says. And then he explains himself. But he, yes, he's much more articulate well, and, and he goes that extra step of, hey, not only do I believe this, let me tell you why I believe that. He adds this intellectual curiosity and underpinning that I've talked a lot about America First will eventually have to have. I mean, it, it'll have to have some ability to not just say these controversial things, but defend those controversial things. But I think Pence and um, Christie are dead men walking because they just can't accept that the way they've done it all their political lives is just not in vogue. I mean, it's not what voters want to see here or be attracted toward. Let's go to the phone. Mike in Darlington. Mike, you're on the air. Hey, I, I think you kind of nailed it again, Ken. Uh, the uh, the whole thing is uh, Ramaswamy is, uh, is just, he's agile. His mind is agile. His mind's quick. And he's fearless, and- Mike, and he's fearless. Oh yeah, he has courage. It's obvious he has courage, and uh, those those guys uh, they just don't come across as sincere. Pence should be able to come across as a sincere type person, but he is just phony. I I don't know. It's like uh, Pharisees chasing around trying to accuse Jesus, and uh, I don't I don't know. Uh, Christie's like the Sadducees, I guess, trying to throw him out of the temple. That's uh, that's just the way these guys are, and they uh, they they seem like dwarfs compared to Trump, except for Ramaswamy. 
he's I, I think he's the real deal and he comes it comes across that way and he has a very agile mind and uh they they I don't think the other guys are quite as smart and uh quick he's a quick study so who, what what Mike who are you interested in tomorrow I mean oh. in other words is it Ramaswamy well, uh, yes, and I'd like to see how Tim Scott does. I, I think, uh, you know, I would, I would really like to see that. But uh, I, uh, Ramaswamy is the one that I would be uh, listening to on the stage. A lot of the others, I just tune out automatically. Interesting. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate it. Here, here's a question for you. Trump's not there. Christie will have all the runway he needs to beat up on Donald Trump. Will any of the other candidates beat up on Christie for beating up on Donald Trump? In other words, the guy's not there, right? I mean, he's making a smart strategic decision. Why expose yourself to that when you're up 30, 40 points? I mean, I think it's smart. Um, as much as I read a poll yesterday, 73% of Republican voters want Trump to be there. But he's making a good decision by not going exposing himself to that one, you know, mistake-prone moment where, where, you know, he could back up the field or somebody – could, could, you know, anyway, he's got a lot of issues. I mean, he's got indictments and courts and trials and all these other sorts of things. So I think the less we hear out of Donald Trump in the next month or two or three, probably the better. In all, in all honesty, Trump needs to kind of mind his own business until January. The last third of the year, from Labor Day until the end of the year, if I'm Trump, I'm trying to raise money. I, I, I'm trying to mind my own business. I mean, obviously, there are legal matters he's got to tend to and deal with, but there's nothing really to gain. I mean, everybody knows Donald Trump. Everybody nearly has made their mind up on Donald Trump. I mean, so, so let him go do, um, you know, prepare for these trials and try to uh, – th that'll be the campaign beginning in January. If Trump's campaign will be, you know, uh, the political persecution or not of Donald Trump. That that's That's how he needs to play this. That's why I said the other day, not only would I hire a good legal team, I'd hire some movie production team to 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 kind of tell my story, not just to a jury, but to, you know, 130, 40, 50 million voters in America. But but if someone what would the likelihood be of someone going after Chris Christie for going after Donald Trump when Trump's not there, but everybody on that stage knows that he has the support of half, you know, roughly half of all GOP primary voters. 843-661-0937. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. 843-661-0937. Couple of callers on the phone. Let's hurry and get through so both we can hear from both of them. All right. We have Stacy calling from Florence. Stacy, you're on the air. Hello, Stacy. Hey, how are you? How are you? You're on the air. Good. Okay. Um, well, Ken, I just wanted to uh, give a little information to you. Um, my second choice would have been um, the Vivek. But um, yesterday I was doing some research, and I came across him on the um, World Economic Forum 2021 Young Global Leaders class listing. And as soon as uh, – candidate is associated with that group i just find myself I, I just back away got you thank you very much appreciate that yeah he is a um i mean he's kind of a mover and shaker in that biotech world and was um uh, 
one one of the my dad brought that up one of the one of the people at the convergence of politics and commerce that you know that the world economic forum the davos men and women saw as somebody who could offer something um to their side of the debate i I get it i mean that that would be a reason to be skeptical of his sincerity about the support of america first because america first and the world economic forum are diametrically opposed one to another let's go to the phone michael cutler calling from florence mike you're on the air Hey, I want a piece of that question that you uh, went into about Chris Christie. I think that it would be absolutely right for anyone to go after Christie because you can pick up some of those soft Trump voters that are, are kind of wishy-washy but know he got a bad deal. And I think it might be the only way Mike Pence gets back in the race, going back to your previous caller, Ken. Thank you. Appreciate That would be my strategy. I mean, if I were going to the debate – and, and I, I mean, I, everything's a Hail Mary with Trump of the game. Thank you for the call. Appreciate it. But if I'm in that debate tomorrow night, there's only one opportunity I'm looking for, and that is to defend Trump. I mean, it doesn't matter what I think of Trump, guys. This is politics. I mean, th- this is the art of persuasion. And, and I'm there. If I'm Ramaswamy or Tim Scott, and, and I'm, I'm waiting on the opportunity for Chris Christie to just lambast Donald Trump, I'm going to lambast uh, Christie for his non-support of America First, his his uh, his neoconservative credentials. It's I mean I, I that would be my my reason for being there. I mean I understand you've got to have you know a stance on foreign policy and a stance on taxes and a stance on on the Supreme Court. I understand all that. I mean I think all the candidates on that stage will be somewhat prepared to answer those questions. But my aha moment, my breakout moment would be taking advantage of an opportunity, if given to me, when Christie begins disparaging Trump, I'm defending Trump and disparaging Chris Christie, and you got to come up with that soundbite. I mean, you got to figure out a way for that moment to be replayed over and over and over again on talk radio, on Fox News, on CNN, the New York Times headline. That's your breakout moment. I mean, if you want to get from 4 5 6% to 12 13 14%, that's that's the moment you do it because there are concerns about Trump's legal peril. I mean, there, there genuinely are people out there who would call themselves America Firsters. They want Trump to be president, but they've accepted this reality of a, a lot of complications lie ahead. And what if it gets real complicated? Who is my second choice? And they'll go back to that moment at the first presidential debate when nobody took on Christie, when everybody let the big bully say what he chose to say, no Somebody stood up and not just defended Donald Trump, but the political movement that, that identifies as America first. That's the breakout moment, but you've got to have it in soundbite fashion. You've got to have it in bumper sticker language. You can't have, you know, three, six, eight paragraphs explaining what it is you're trying to say. I have served with Jack Kennedy. I know you're no Jack Kennedy. There you go again. We'll talk tomorrow. Enjoy your day.